This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Bartleby the Scrivener by Herman Melville. It's read by Bob Newfeld for LibriVox. It runs one hour, 54 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Bartleby the Scrivener A Story of Wall Street by Herman Melville I am a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last thirty years has brought me into more than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular set of men, of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written. I mean the law-copyists, or scriveners. I have known very many of them, professionally and privately, and, if I pleased, could relate diverse histories, at which good-natured gentlemen might smile, and sentimental souls might weep. But I waive the biographies of all other scriveners for a few passages in the life of Bartleby who was a scrivener of the strangest I ever saw or heard of. While of other law-copyists I might write the complete life, of Bartleby nothing of that sort can be done. I believe no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. It is an irreparable loss to literature. Bartleby was one of those beings of whom nothing is ascertainable except from the original sources, and in his case those are very small. What my own astonished eyes saw of Bartleby, that is all I know of him, except, indeed, one vague report which will appear in the sequel. Ere introducing the scrivener, as he first appeared to me, it is fit I make some mention of myself, my employees, my business, my chambers, and general surroundings, because some description is indispensable to an adequate understanding of the chief character about to be presented. Imprimis, I am a man who, from his youth upwards, has been filled with a profound conviction that the easiest way of life is the best. Hence, though I belong to a profession proverbially energetic and nervous, even to turbulence at times, yet nothing of that sort have I ever suffered to invade my peace. I am one of those unambitious lawyers who never addresses a jury, or in any way draws down public applause. But in the cool tranquillity of a snug retreat, do a snug business among rich men's bonds and mortgages and title-deeds. All who know me consider me an eminently safe man. The late John Jacob Astor, a personage little given to poetic enthusiasm, had no hesitation in pronouncing my first grand point to be prudence. My next, method. 
I do not speak it in vanity, but simply record the fact that I was not unemployed in my profession by the late John Jacob Astor, a name which, I admit, I love to repeat, for it hath a rounded and orbicular sound to it, and rings like unto bullion. I will freely add that I was not insensible to the late John Jacob Astor's good opinion. Some time prior to the period at which this little history begins, my avocations had been largely increased. The good old office, now extinct in the state of New York, of a master in chancery had been conferred upon me. It was not a very arduous office, but very pleasantly remunerative. I seldom lose my temper, much more seldom indulge in dangerous indignation at wrongs and outrages, but I must be permitted to be rash here, and declare that I consider the sudden and violent abrogation of the office of master in chancery, by the new constitution, as a, a premature act, inasmuch as I had counted upon a life lease of the profits, whereas I only received those of a few short years. But this is by the way. My chambers were upstairs at number Wall Street. At one end they looked upon the white wall of the interior of a spacious skylight shaft, penetrating the building from top to bottom. This view might have been considered rather tame than otherwise, deficient in what landscape painters call life. But, if so, the view from the other end of my chambers offered at least a contrast, if nothing more. In that direction my windows commanded an unobstructed view of a lofty brick wall, black by age and everlasting shade, which wall required no spy-glass to bring out its lurking beauties, but for the benefit of all near-sighted spectators was pushed up to within ten feet of my window-panes. Owing to the great height of the surrounding buildings, and my chambers being on the second floor, the interval between this wall and mine not a little resembled a huge square cistern. At the period just preceding the advent of Bartleby, I had two persons as copyists in my employment, and a promising lad as an office-boy first turkey second nippers third ginger nut these may seem names the like of which are not usually found in the directory in truth they were nicknames mutually conferred upon each other by my three clerks and were deemed expressive of their respective persons or characters turkey was a short pursy englishman of about my own age that is somewhere not far from sixty. In the morning one might say his face was of a fine florid hue, but after twelve o'clock meridian, his dinner hour, it blazed like a grate full of Christmas coals, and continued blazing, but as it were with a gradual wane, till six o'clock p.m., or thereabouts after which I saw no more of the proprietor of the face, which, gaining its meridian with the sun, seemed to set with it, 
to rise, culminate, and decline the following day with the like regularity and undiminished glory. There are many singular coincidences I have known in the course of my life, not the least among which was the fact that exactly when Turkey displayed his fullest beams from his red and radiant countenance, just then, too, at that critical moment, began the daily period when I considered his business capacities as seriously disturbed for the remainder of the twenty-four hours. Not that he was absolutely idle, or averse to business then, far from it. The difficulty was, he was apt to be altogether too energetic. There was a strange, inflamed, flurried, flighty recklessness of activity about him. He would be incautious in dipping his pen into his inkstand. All his blots upon my documents were dropped there after twelve o'clock meridian. Indeed, not only would he be reckless, and sadly given to making blots in the afternoon, but some days he went further, and was rather noisy. At such times, too, his face flamed with augmented blazonry, as if a cannel coal had been heaped on anthracite. He made an unpleasant racket with his chair, spilled his sandbox, in mending his pens, impatiently split them all to pieces, and threw them on the floor in a sudden passion, stood up and leaned over his table, boxing his papers about in a most indecorous manner very sad to behold in an elderly man like him. Nevertheless, as he was in many ways a most valuable person to me, and all the time before twelve o'clock, Meridian, was the quickest, steadiest creature too, accomplishing a great deal of work in a style not easy to be matched, for these reasons I was willing to overlook his eccentricities, though indeed occasionally I remonstrated with him. I did this very gently, however, because, though the civilest, nay, the blandest and most reverential of men in the morning, yet in the afternoon he was disposed, upon provocation, to be slightly rash with his tongue, in fact, insolent. Now, valuing his morning services as I did, and resolved not to lose them, yet at the same time made uncomfortable by his inflamed ways after twelve o'clock, and being a man of peace, unwilling by my admonitions to call forth unseemly retorts from him, I took upon me, one Saturday noon—he was always worse on Saturdays—to hint to him, very kindly, that perhaps, now that he was growing old, it might be well to abridge his labours. In short, he need not come to my chambers after twelve o'clock, but, dinner over, had best go home to his lodgings and rest himself till tea-time. But, no, he insisted upon his afternoon devotions. His countenance became intolerably fervid, as he oratorically assured me, gesticulating with a long ruler at the other end of the room, that if his services in the morning were useful, how indispensable, then, in the afternoon! "'With submission, sir,' said Turkey, on this occasion, "'I consider myself your right-hand man. 
in the morning i but marshal and deploy my columns but in the afternoon i put myself at their head and gallantly charged the foe thus and he made a violent thrust with the ruler but the blots turkey intimated i true but with submission sir behold these hairs i am getting old surely sir a blot or two of a warm afternoon is not to be severely urged against gray hairs old age even if it blot the page is honorable with submission sir we both are getting old this appeal to my fellow-feeling was hardly to be resisted at all events i saw that go he would not so i made up my mind to let him stay resolving nevertheless to see to it that during the afternoon he had to do with my less important papers nippers the second on my list was a whiskered sallow and upon the whole rather piratical-looking young man of about five-and-twenty i always deemed him the victim of two evil powers ambition and indigestion the ambition was evinced by a certain impatience of the duties of a mere copyist an unwarrantable usurpation of strictly professional affairs such as the original drawing up of legal documents the indigestion seemed betokened in an occasional nervous testiness and grinning irritability causing the teeth to audibly grind together over mistakes committed in copying unnecessary maledictions hissed rather than spoken in the heat of business and especially by a continual discontent with the height of the table where he worked though of a very ingenious mechanical turn nippers could never get this table to suit him he put chips under it blocks of various sorts bits of pasteboard and at last went so far as to attempt an exquisite adjustment by final pieces of folding blotting paper but no invention would answer if for the sake of easing his back he brought the table lid at a sharp angle well up towards his chin and wrote there like a man using the steep roof of a dutch house for his desk then he declared that it stopped the circulation in his arms if now he lowered the table to his waistbands and stooped over it in writing then there was a sore aching in his back in short the truth of the matter was nippers knew not what he wanted or if he wanted anything it was to be rid of a scrivener's table altogether among the manifestations of his diseased ambition was a fondness he had for receiving visits from certain ambiguous-looking fellows in seedy coats whom he called his clients indeed i was aware that not only was he at times considerable of a ward politician but he occasionally did a little business at the justices courts and was not unknown on the steps of the tombs i have good reason to believe however that one individual who called upon him at my chambers and who with a grand air he insisted was his client was no other than a dun 
and the alleged title-deed a bill. But, with all his failings and the annoyances he caused me, Nippers, like his compatriot Turkey, was a very useful man to me, wrote a neat swift hand, and, when he chose, was not deficient in a gentlemanly sort of deportment. Added to this, he always dressed in a gentlemanly sort of way, and so, incidentally, reflected credit upon my chambers. Whereas with respect to Turkey, I had much ado to keep him from being a reproach to me. His clothes were apt to look oily, and smell of eating-houses. He wore his pantaloons very loose and baggy in summer. His coats were execrable. His hat not to be handled. But while the hat was a thing of indifference to me, inasmuch as his natural civility and deference, as a dependent Englishman, always led him to doff it the moment he entered the room, yet his coat was another matter. Concerning his coats, I reasoned with him, but with no effect. The truth was, I suppose, that a man of so small an income could not afford to sport such a lustrous face and a lustrous coat at one and the same time. As Nippers once observed, Turkey's money went chiefly for red ink. One winter day I presented Turkey with a highly respectable-looking coat of my own, a padded grey coat of a most comfortable warmth, and which buttoned straight up from the knee to the neck. I thought Turkey would appreciate the favour, and abate his rashness and obstreperousness of afternoons. But no. I verily believe that buttoning himself up in so downy and blanket-like a coat had a pernicious effect upon him, upon the same principle that too much oats are bad for horses. In fact, precisely as a rash, restive horse is said to feel his oats, so Turkey felt his coat. It made him insolent. He was a man whom prosperity harmed. Though concerning the self-indulgent habits of Turkey I had my own private surmises, yet touching nippers, I was well persuaded that whatever might be his fault in other respects, he was at least a temperate young man. But, indeed, nature herself seemed to have been his vintner, and at his birth charged him so thoroughly with an irritable brandy-like disposition that all subsequent potations were needless. When I consider how, amid the stillness of my chambers, Nippers would sometimes impatiently rise from his seat, and stooping over his table, spread his arms wide apart, seize the whole desk, and move it and jerk it with a grim grinding motion on the floor, as if the table were a perverse voluntary agent intent on thwarting and vexing him, I plainly perceive that for nippers brandy and water were altogether superfluous. It was fortunate for me that, owing to its peculiar cause, indigestion, the irritability and consequent nervousness of nippers were mainly observable in the morning, while in the afternoon he was comparatively mild. 
so that Turkey's paroxysms, only coming on about twelve o'clock, I never had to do with their eccentricities at one time. Their fits relieved each other like guards. When Nippers was on, Turkey's was off, and vice versa. This was a good natural arrangement, under the circumstances. Gingernut, the third on my list, was a lad some twelve years old. His father was a carman, ambitious of seeing his son on the bench instead of a cart before he died. So he sent him to my office as a student at law, errand boy, and cleaner and sweeper, at the rate of one dollar a week. He had a little desk to himself, but he did not use it much. Upon inspection, the drawer exhibited a great array of the shells of various sorts of nuts. Indeed, to this quick-witted youth, the whole noble science of the law was contained in a nutshell. Not the least among the employments of Ginger Nut, as well as one which he discharged with the most alacrity, was his duty as cake and apple purveyor for turkey and nippers. Copying law papers being proverbially dry, husky sort of business, my two scriveners were fain to moisten their mouths very often with Spitzenbergs to be had at the numerous stalls nigh the custom house and post office. Also, they sent Ginger Nut very frequently for that peculiar cake, small, flat, round, and very spicy, after which he had been named by them. Of a cold morning, when business was but dull, Turkey would gobble up scores of these cakes, as if they were mere wafers. Indeed, they sell them at the rate of six or eight for a penny. The scrape of his pen blending with the crunching of the crisp particles in his mouth. Of all the fiery afternoon blunders and flurried rashnesses of turkey was his once moistening a ginger cake between his lips and clapping it on to a mortgage for a seal. I came within an ace of dismissing him then, but he mollified me by making an oriental bow and saying, with submission, sir, it was generous of me to find you in stationery on my own account. Now my original business, that of a conveyancer and title-hunter, and drawer-up of recondite documents of all sorts, was considerably increased by receiving the master's office. There was now great work for scriveners. Not only must I push the clerks already with me, but I must have additional help. In answer to my advertisement, a motionless young man one morning stood upon my office threshold, the door being open, for it was summer. I can see that figure now, pallidly neat, pitiably respectable, incurably forlorn. It was Bartleby. After a few words touching his qualifications, I engaged him glad to have among my corps of copyists a man of so singularly sedate an aspect, which I thought might operate beneficially upon the flighty temper of Turkey and the fiery one of Nippers. I should have stated before that ground-glass folding-doors divided my premises into two parts, one of which was occupied by my scriveners, the other by myself. 
according to my humour, I threw open these doors or closed them. I resolved to assign Bartleby a corner by the folding doors, but on my side of them, so as to have this quiet man within easy call, in case any trifling thing was to be done. I placed his desk close up to a small side window in that part of the room, a window which originally had afforded a lateral view of certain grimy backyards and bricks, but which, owing to subsequent erections, commanded at present no view at all, though it gave some light. Within three feet of the panes was a wall, and the light came down from far above, between two lofty buildings, as from a very small opening in a dome. Still further to a satisfactory arrangement, I procured a high green folding screen, which might entirely isolate Bartleby from my sight, though not remove him from my voice, and thus, in a manner, privacy and society were conjoined. At first Bartleby did an extraordinary quantity of writing, as if long famishing for something to copy, he seemed to gorge himself on my documents. There was no pause for digestion. He ran a day and night line, copying by sunlight and by candlelight. I should have been quite delighted with his application had he been cheerfully industrious, but he wrote on silently, palely, mechanically. It is, of course, an indispensable part of a scrivener's business to verify the accuracy of his copy, word for word. Where there are two or more scriveners in an office, they assist each other in this examination, one reading from the copy, the other holding the original. It is a very dull, wearisome, and lethargic affair. I can readily imagine that to some sanguine temperaments it would be altogether intolerable. For example, I cannot credit that the meddlesome poet Byron would have contentedly sat down with Bartleby to examine a law document of, say, five hundred pages closely written in a crimpy hand. Now and then, in the haste of business, it had been my habit to assist in comparing some brief document myself, calling turkey or nippers for this purpose. One object I had in placing Bartleby so handy to me behind the screen was to avail myself of his services on such trivial occasions. It was on the third day, I think, of his being with me, and before any necessity had arisen for having his own writing examined, that, being much hurried to complete a small affair I had in hand, I abruptly called to Bartleby. In my haste and natural expectancy of instant compliance, I sat with my head bent over the original on my desk, and my right hand sideways, and somewhat nervously extended with the copy, so that immediately upon emerging from his retreat, Bartleby might snatch it and proceed to business without the least delay. In this very attitude did I sit when I called to him rapidly stating what it was I wanted him to do, namely, to examine a small paper with me. Imagine my surprise, nay, my consternation, when, without moving from his privacy, Bartleby, in a singularly mild, firm voice, replied, 
I would prefer not to. I sat a while in perfect silence, rallying my stunned faculties. Immediately it occurred to me that my ears had deceived me, or Bartleby had entirely misunderstood my meaning. I repeated my request in the clearest tone I could assume, but in quite as clear a one came the previous reply. I would prefer not to. "'Prefer not to?' echoed I, rising in high excitement, and crossing the room with a stride. "'What do you mean? Are you moonstruck? I want you to help me compare this sheet. Here, take it.' And I thrust it towards him. "'I would prefer not to,' said he. I looked at him steadfastly. His face was leanly composed his grey eye dimly calm. Not a wrinkle of agitation rippled him. Had there been the least uneasiness, anger, impatience, or impertinence in his manner? In other words, had there been anything ordinarily human about him, doubtless I should have violently dismissed him from the premises. But, as it was, I should have as soon thought of turning my pale plaster of Paris bust of Cicero out of doors. I stood gazing at him a while, as he went on with his writing, and then reseated myself at my desk. This is very strange, thought I. What had one best do? But my business hurried me. I concluded to forget the matter for the present, reserving it for my future leisure. So, calling nippers from the other room, the paper was speedily examined. A few days after this, Bartleby concluded four lengthy documents, being quadruplicates of a week's testimony taken before me in my high court of chancery. It became necessary to examine them. It was an important suit, and great accuracy was imperative. Having all things arranged, I called turkey, nippers, and ginger-nut from the next room, meaning to place the four copies in the hands of my four clerks, while I should read from the original. Accordingly, Turkey, Nippers, and Gingernut had taken their seats in a row, each with his document in hand, when I called to Bartleby to join this interesting group. Bartleby, quick, I am waiting. I heard a slow scrape of his chair-legs on the uncarpeted floor, and soon he appeared, standing at the entrance of his hermitage. What is wanted? he said mildly. "'The copies! the copies!' said I hurriedly. "'We are going to examine them. There!' And I held towards him the fourth quadruplicate. "'I would prefer not to,' he said, and gently disappeared behind the screen. For a few moments I was turned into a pillar of salt, standing at the head of my seated column of clerks. Recovering myself, I advanced towards the screen, and demanded the reason for such extraordinary conduct. Why do you refuse? I would prefer not to. With any other man, I should have flown outright into a dreadful passion, scorned all further words, and thrust him ignominiously from my presence. But there was something about Bartleby that not only strangely disarmed me, 
but in a wonderful manner touched and disconcerted me. I began to reason with him. These are your own copies we are about to examine. It is labor-saving to you, because one examination will answer for your four papers. It is common usage. Every copyist is bound to examine his copy. Is it not so? Will you not speak? Answer! I prefer not to, he replied in a flute-like tone. It seemed to me that while I had been addressing him, he carefully revolved every statement that I made, fully comprehended the meaning, could not gainsay the irresistible conclusions, but at the same time some paramount consideration prevailed with him to reply as he did. You are decided, then, not to comply with my request, a request made according to common usage and common sense? He briefly gave me to understand that on that point my judgment was sound. Yes, his decision was irreversible. It is not seldom the case that when a man is browbeaten in some unprecedented and violently unreasonable way, he begins to stagger in his own plainest faith. He begins, as it were, vaguely to surmise that, wonderful as it may be, all the justice and all the reason is on the other side. Accordingly, if any disinterested persons are present, he turns to them for some reinforcement for his own faltering mind. "'Turkey,' said I, "'what do you think of this? Am I not right?' "'With submission, sir,' said Turkey, with his blandest tone, "'I think that you are.' "'Nippers,' said I, "'what do you think of it?' "'I think we should kick him out of the office.' The reader of nice perceptions will here perceive that, it being morning, Turkey's answer is couched in polite and tranquil terms, but Nippers replies in ill-tempered ones. Or, to repeat a previous sentence, Nippers' ugly mood was on duty, and Turkey's off. "'Ginger Nut,' said I, willing to enlist the smallest suffrage in my behalf, "'what do you think of it?' "'I think, sir, "'He's a little loony,' replied Ginger Nut, with a grin. "'You hear what they say?' said I, turning towards the screen. "'Come forth and do your duty.' But he vouchsafed no reply. I pondered a moment in sore perplexity, but once more business hurried me. I determined again to postpone the consideration of this dilemma to my future leisure. With a little trouble, we made out to examine the papers without Bartleby, though at every page or two Turkey deferentially dropped his opinion that the proceeding was quite out of the common, while Nippers, twitching in his chair with a dyspeptic nervousness, ground out between his set teeth occasional hissing maledictions against the stubborn oaf behind the screen. And for his, Nippers, part, this was the first and last time he would do another man's business without pay. Meanwhile, Bartleby sat in his hermitage, oblivious to everything but his own peculiar business there. Some days passed, the scrivener being employed upon another lengthy work. 
his late remarkable conduct led me to regard his ways narrowly. I observed that he never went to dinner. Indeed, he never went anywhere. As yet I had never of my personal knowledge known him to be outside of my office. He was a perpetual sentry in the corner. At about eleven o'clock, though, in the morning, I noticed that Ginger Nut would advance toward the opening in Bartleby's screen, as if silently beckoned thither by a gesture invisible to me where I sat. The boy would then leave the office jingling a few pence, and reappear with a handful of Ginger Nuts, which he delivered in the Hermitage, receiving two of the cakes for his trouble. He lives then on Ginger Nuts, thought I never eats a dinner, properly speaking. He must be a vegetarian, then. But no, he never eats even vegetables. He eats nothing but ginger-nuts. My mind, then, ran on in reveries, concerning the probable effects upon the human constitution, of living entirely on ginger-nuts. Ginger-nuts are so called because they contain ginger as one of their peculiar constituents, and the final flavouring one. Now, what was ginger? A hot, spicy thing. Was Bartleby hot and spicy? Not at all. Ginger, then, had no effect on Bartleby. Probably he preferred it should have none. Nothing so aggravates an earnest person as a passive resistance. If the individual so resisted be of a not inhumane temper, and the resisting one perfectly harmless in his passivity, then, in the better moods of the former, he will endeavour charitably to construe to his imagination what proves impossible to be solved by his judgment. Even so, for the most part, I regarded Bartleby in his ways. Poor fellow, thought I he means no mischief. It is plain he intends no insolence. His aspect sufficiently evinces that his eccentricities are involuntary. He is useful to me. I can get along with him. If I turn him away, the chances are he will fall in with some less indulgent employer, and then he will be rudely treated, and perhaps driven forth miserably to starve. Yes, here I can cheaply purchase a delicious self-approval. To befriend Bartleby, to humour him in his strange willfulness, will cost me little or nothing, while I lay up in my soul what will eventually prove a sweet morsel for my conscience. But this mood was not invariable with me. The passiveness of Bartleby sometimes irritated me. I felt strangely goaded on to encounter him in new opposition, to elicit some angry spark from him answerable to my own. But, indeed, I might as well have essayed to strike fire with my knuckles against a bit of Windsor soap. But one afternoon the evil impulse in me mastered me, and the following little scene ensued. Bartleby, said I, when those papers are all copied, I will compare them with you. I would prefer not to. How? 
surely you do not mean to persist in this mulish vagary no answer i threw open the folding doors near by and turning upon turkey and nippers exclaimed in an excited manner he says a second time he won't examine his papers what do you think of it turkey it was afternoon be it remembered turkey sat glowing like a brass boiler his bald head steaming his hands reeling among his blotted papers think of it roared turkey i think i'll just step behind his screen and black his eyes for him so saying turkey rose to his feet and threw his arms into a pugilistic position he was hurrying away to make good his promise when i detained him alarmed at the effect of incautiously rousing turkey's combativeness after dinner sit down turkey said i and hear what nippers has to say what do you think of it nippers would i not be justified in immediately dismissing bartleby excuse me that is for you to decide sir i think his conduct quite unusual and indeed unjust as regards turkey and myself but it may only be a passing whim ah exclaimed i you have strangely changed your mind then you speak very gently of him now all beer cried turkey gentleness is effects of beer nippers and i dine together to-day you see how gentle i am sir shall i go and black his eyes you refer to bartleby i suppose no not to-day turkey i replied pray put up your fists i closed the doors and again advanced towards bartleby i felt additional incentives tempting me to my fate i burned to be rebelled against again i remembered that bartleby never left the office bartleby said i ginger nut is away just step round to the post office won't you it was but a three-minute walk and see if there is anything for me i would prefer not to you will not i prefer not i staggered to my desk and sat there in a deep study my blind inveteracy returned was there anything in which i could procure myself to be ignominiously repulsed by this lean penniless white my hired clerk what added thing is there perfectly reasonable that he will be sure to refuse to do bartleby no answer bartleby in a louder tone no answer bartleby i roared like a very ghost agreeable to the laws of magical invocation at the third summons he appeared at the entrance of his hermitage go to the next room and tell nippers to come to me i prefer not to he respectfully and slowly said and mildly disappeared very good bartleby said i in a quiet sort of serenely severe self-possessed tone intimating the unalterable purpose of some terrible retribution very close at hand 
at the moment I half intended something of the kind. But, upon the whole, as it was drawing towards my dinner hour, I thought it best to put on my hat and walk home for the day, suffering much from perplexity and distress of mind. Shall I acknowledge it? The conclusion of this whole business was that it soon became a fixed fact of my chambers that a pale young scrivener by the name of Bartleby had a desk there, that he copied from me at the usual rate of four cents a folio, one hundred words, but he was permanently exempt from examining the work done by him, that duty being transferred to Turkey at Nippers, one of compliment doubtless to their superior acuteness. Moreover, said Bartleby, was never, on any account, to be dispatched on the most trivial errand of any sort, and that even if entreated to take upon him such a matter, it was generally understood that he would prefer not to, in other words, that he would refuse point-blank. As days passed on, I became considerably reconciled to Bartleby. His steadiness, his freedom from all dissipation, his incessant industry, except when he chose to throw himself into a standing reverie behind his screen, his great stillness, his unalterableness of demeanour under all circumstances, made him a valuable acquisition. One prime thing was this. He was always there. First in the morning, continually through the day, and the last at night, I had a singular confidence in his honesty. I felt my most precious papers perfectly safe in his hands. Sometimes, to be sure, I could not, for the very soul of me, avoid falling into sudden spasmodic passions with him, for it was exceedingly difficult to bear in mind all the time those strange peculiarities, privileges, and unheard-of exemptions, forming the tacit stipulations on Bartleby's part under which he remained in my office. Now and then, in the eagerness of dispatching pressing business, I would inadvertently summon Bartleby, in a short rapid tone, to put his finger, say, on the incipient tie of a bit of red tape, with which I was about compressing some papers. Of course, from behind the screen, the usual answer, I prefer not to, was sure to come. And then, how could a human creature with the common infirmities of our nature refrain from bitterly exclaiming under such perverseness, such unreasonableness. However, every added repulse of this sort which I received only tended to lessen the probability of my repeating the inadvertence. Here it must be said that, according to the custom of most legal gentlemen occupying chambers in densely populated law buildings, there were several keys to my door. One was kept by a woman residing in the attic, which person weekly scrubbed and daily swept and dusted my apartments. Another was kept by Turkey, for convenience sake. The third I sometimes carried in my own pocket. The fourth I knew not who had. Now, one Sunday morning I happened to go to Trinity Church to hear a celebrated preacher, 
and finding myself rather early on the ground, I thought I would walk around to my chambers for a while. Luckily I had my key with me. But, applying it to the lock, I found it resisted by something inserted from the inside. Quite surprised, I called out, when, to my consternation, a key was turned from within, and thrusting his lean visage at me, and holding the door ajar, the apparition of Bartleby appeared, in his shirt-sleeves, and otherwise in a strangely tattered dishabille, saying quietly that he was sorry, but he was deeply engaged just then, and preferred not admitting me at present. In a brief word or two he moreover added that perhaps I had better walk around the block two or three times, and by that time he would probably have concluded his affairs. Now, the utterly unsurmised appearance of Bartleby, tenanting my law-chambers of a Sunday morning, with his cadaverously gentlemanly nonchalance, yet with all firm and self-possessed, had such a strange effect upon me, that incontinently I slunk away from my own door, and did as desired. But, not without sundry twinges of impotent rebellion against the mild effrontery of this unaccountable scrivener, indeed it was his wonderful mildness, chiefly, which not only disarmed me, but unmanned me, as it were. For I consider that one, for the time, is a sort of unmanned when he tranquilly permits his hired clerk to dictate to him, and order him away from his own premises. Furthermore, I was full of uneasiness as to what Bartleby could possibly be doing in my office in his shirt-sleeves, and in an otherwise dismantled condition of a Sunday morning. Was anything amiss going on? Nay, that was out of the question. It was not to be thought of for a moment that Bartleby was an immoral person. But what could he be doing there? Copying? Nay, again, whatever might be his eccentricities, Bartleby was an eminently decorous person. He would be the last man to sit down to his desk in any state approaching to nudity. Besides, it was Sunday and there was something about Bartleby that forbade the supposition that he would by any secular occupation violate the proprieties of the day. Nevertheless, my mind was not pacified, and, full of a restless curiosity, at last I returned to the door. Without hindrance I inserted my key, opened it, and entered. Bartleby was not to be seen. I looked round anxiously, peeped behind his screen, but it was very plain that he was gone. Upon more closely examining the place, I surmised that for an indefinite period Bartleby must have ate, dressed, and slept in my office, and that too without plate, mirror, or bed. The cushioned seat of a rickety old sofa in one corner bore the faint impress of a lean reclining form. Rolled away under his desk I found a blanket, under the empty grate a blacking box and brush, on a chair a tin basin with soap and a ragged towel, 
in a newspaper, a few crumbs of ginger-nuts, and a morsel of cheese. Yes, thought I, it is evident enough that Bartleby has been making his home here, keeping Bachelor's Hall all by himself. Immediately then the thought came sweeping across me. What miserable friendlessness and loneliness are here revealed! His poverty is great, but his solitude! Oh, horrible! Think of it! Of a Sunday, Wall Street is deserted as Petra, and every night of every day it is an emptiness. This building, too, which of weekdays hums with industry and life, at nightfall echoes with sheer vacancy, and all through Sunday is forlorn. And here Bartleby makes his home, sole spectator of a solitude which he has seen all populous, a sort of innocent and transformed Marius brooding among the ruins of Carthage. For the first time in my life, a feeling of overpowering, stinging melancholy seized me. Before, I had never experienced aught but a not unpleasing sadness. The bond of common humanity now drew me irresistibly to gloom, a fraternal melancholy, for both I and Bartleby were sons of Adam. I remembered the bright silks and sparkling faces I had seen that day in gala trim, swan-like sailing down the Mississippi of Broadway, and I contrasted them with the pallid copyist, and thought to myself, ah, happiness courts the light, so we deem the world is gay, but misery hides aloof, so we deem that misery there is none. These sad fancyings, chimeras doubtless of a sick and silly brain, led on to other and more special thoughts concerning the eccentricities of Bartleby. Presentiments of strange discoveries hovered round me. The scrivener's pale form appeared to me laid out among uncaring strangers in its shivering winding-sheet. Suddenly I was attracted by Bartleby's closed desk, the key in open sight left in the lock. I mean no mischief, seek the gratification of no heartless curiosity, thought I. Besides, the desk is mine, and its contents too. So I will make bold to look within. Everything was methodically arranged, the papers smoothly placed. The pigeonholes were deep, and removing the files of documents, I groped into their recesses. Presently, I felt something there, and dragged it out. It was an old bandana handkerchief, heavy and knotted. I opened it, and saw it was a savings-bank. I now recalled all the quiet mysteries which I had noted in the man. I remembered that he never spoke but to answer, that, though at intervals he had considerable time to himself, yet I had never seen him reading. No, not even a newspaper. That for long periods he would stand looking out at his pale window behind the screen, upon the dead brick wall, 
I was quite sure he never visited any refectory or eating-house, while his pale face clearly indicated that he never drank beer like turkey, or tea or coffee even, like other men, that he never went anywhere in particular that I could learn, never went out for a walk, unless indeed that was the case at present, that he had declined telling who he was or whence he came, or whether he had any relatives in the world, that though so thin and pale, he never complained of ill health. And more than all, I remembered a certain unconscious air of pallid—how shall I call it?—of pallid haughtiness, say, or rather an austere reserve about him, which had positively awed me into my tame compliance with his eccentricities when I feared to ask him to do the slightest incidental thing for me, even though I might know, from his long-continued motionlessness, that behind his screen he must be standing in one of those dead-walled reveries of his. Revolving all these things— and coupling them with the recently discovered fact that he made my office his constant abiding-place and home, and not forgetful of his morbid moodiness, revolving all these things, a prudential feeling began to steal over me. My first emotions had been those of pure melancholy and sincerest pity. But just in proportion as the forlornness of Bartleby grew and grew to my imagination, did that same melancholy merge into fear, that pity into repulsion. So true it is, and so terrible, too, that up to a certain point the thought or sight of misery enlists our best affections, but in certain special cases beyond that point it does not. They err who would assert that invariably this is owing to the inherent selfishness of the human heart. It rather proceeds from a certain hopelessness of remedying excessive and organic ill. To a sensitive being, pity is not seldom pain, and when at last it is perceived that such pity cannot lead to effectual succor, common sense bids the soul rid of it. What I saw that morning persuaded me that the scrivener was the victim of innate and incurable disorder. I might give alms to his body, but his body did not pain him. It was his soul that suffered, and his soul I could not reach. I did not accomplish the purpose of going to Trinity Church that morning. Somehow— the things I had seen disqualified me for the time from church-going. I walked homeward, thinking what I would do with Bartleby. Finally, I resolved upon this. I would put certain calm questions to him the next morning, touching his history, etc., and if he declined to answer them openly and unreservedly, and I supposed that he would prefer not, then to give him a twenty-dollar bill over and above whatever I might owe him, and tell him his services were no longer required, but that if in any other way I could assist him, I would be happy to do so, especially 
If he desired to return to his native place, wherever that might be, I would willingly help to defray the expenses. Moreover, if, after reaching home, he found himself at any time in want of aid, a letter from him would be sure of a reply. The next morning came. Bartleby, said I, gently calling to him behind his screen. No reply. Bartleby, said I, in a still gentler tone, come here. I am not going to ask you to do anything you would prefer not to do. I simply wish to speak to you. Upon this he noiselessly slid into view. "'Will you tell me, Bartleby, where you were born?' "'I would prefer not to.' "'Will you tell me anything about yourself?' "'I would prefer not to.' "'But what reasonable objection can you have to speak to me? I feel friendly towards you.' He did not look at me while I spoke but kept his glance fixed upon my bust of Cicero, which, as I then sat, was directly behind me, some six inches above my head. "'What is your answer, Bartleby?' said I, after waiting a considerable time for a reply, during which his countenance remained immovable, only there was the faintest conceivable tremor of the white attenuated mouth. "'At present I prefer to give no answer.' he said, and retired into his hermitage. It was rather weak in me, I confess, but his manner on this occasion nettled me. Not only did there seem to lurk in it a certain calm disdain, but his perverseness seemed ungrateful, considering the undeniable good usage and indulgence he had received from me. Again I sat ruminating what I should do mortified as I was at his behaviour, and resolved as I had been to dismiss him when I entered my offices, nevertheless I strangely felt something superstitious knocking at my heart, and forbidding me to carry out my purpose, and denouncing me for a villain if I dared to breathe one bitter word against this forlornest of mankind. At last, familiarly drawing my chair behind his screen, I sat down and said, Bartleby, never mind then about revealing your history, but let me entreat you, as a friend, to comply as far as may be with the usages of this office. Say now you will help to examine papers to-morrow, or next day. In short, say now that in a day or two, you will begin to be a little reasonable. Say so, Bartleby. At present I would prefer not to be a little reasonable, was his mildly cadaverous reply. Just then the folding doors opened, and Nippers approached. He seemed suffering from an unusually bad night's rest, induced by severer indigestion than carbon. He overheard these final words of Bartleby. "'Prefer not, eh?' gritted Nippers. "'I'd prefer him, if I were you, sir,' addressing me. "'I'd prefer him. I'd give him preferences, the stubborn mule. What is it, sir, that he prefers not to do now?' Bartleby moved not a limb. "'Mr. Nippers,' said I, 
I'd prefer that you would withdraw for the present. Somehow, of late, I had got into the way of involuntarily using the word prefer upon all sorts of not exactly suitable occasions. And I trembled to think that my contact with the scrivener had already, and seriously, affected me in a mental way. But what further and deeper aberration might it yet produce? This apprehension had not been without efficacy in determining me to summary means. As Nippers, looking very sour and sulky, was departing, Turkey blandly and deferentially approached. "'With submission, sir,' said he, "'yesterday I was thinking about Bartleby here, and I think that if he would but prefer to take a quart of good ale every day, it would do much towards mending him.' and enabling him to assist in examining his papers. "'So you have got the word, too,' said I, slightly excited. "'With submission, what word, sir?' asked Turkey, respectfully crowding himself into the contracted space between the screen, and by so doing making me jostle the scrivener. "'What word, sir?' "'I would prefer to be left alone here.' said bartleby as if offended at being mobbed in his privacy that's the word turkey said i that's it oh prefer oh yes queer word i never use it myself but sir as i was saying if he would but prefer turkey interrupted i you will please withdraw oh certainly sir if you prefer that i should as he opened the folding-door to retire nippers at his desk caught a glimpse of me and asked whether i would prefer to have a certain paper copied on blue paper or white he did not in the least roguishly accent the word prefer it was plain that it involuntarily rolled from his tongue i thought to myself surely i must get rid of a demented man who already has in some degree turned the tongues if not the heads of myself and clerks but i thought it prudent not to break the dismission at once the next day i noticed that bartleby did nothing but stand at his window in his dead wall reverie upon asking him why he did not write he said that he had decided upon doing no more writing. "'Why? How now? What next?' exclaimed I. "'Do no more writing?' "'No more.' "'And what is the reason?' "'Do you not see the reason for yourself?' he indifferently replied. I looked steadfastly at him and perceived that his eyes looked dull and glazed. Instantly it occurred to me that his unexampled diligence in copying by his dim window for the first few weeks of his stay with me might have temporarily impaired his vision. I was touched. I said something in condolence with him. I hinted that of course he did wisely in abstaining for writing for a while, and urged him to embrace that opportunity of taking wholesome exercise in the open air. This, however, he did not do. A few days after this, 
my other clerks being absent, and being in a great hurry to dispatch certain letters by the mail, I thought that, having nothing else earthly to do, Bartleby would surely be less inflexible than usual and carry these letters to the post-office. But he blankly declined. So, much to my inconvenience, I went myself. Still, added days went by. Whether Bartleby's eyes improved or not, I could not say. To all appearance, I thought they did. But when I asked him if they did, he vouchsafed no answer. At all events, he would do no copying. At last, in reply to my urgings, he informed me that he had permanently given up copying. What? exclaimed I. Suppose your eyes should get entirely well, better than ever before. Would you not copy then? I have given up copying, he answered, and slid aside. He remained as ever a fixture in my chamber. Nay, if that were possible, he became still more of a fixture than before. What was to be done? He would do nothing in the office. Why should he stay there? In plain fact, he had now become a millstone to me, not only useless as a necklace, but afflictive to bear. Yet I was sorry for him. I speak less than truth when I say that, on his own account, he occasioned me uneasiness. If he would have but named a single relative or friend, I would instantly have written and urged their taking the poor fellow away to some convenient retreat. But he seemed alone, absolutely alone in the universe, a bit of wreck in the mid-Atlantic. At length necessities connected with my business tyrannized over all other considerations. Decently as I could, I told Bartleby that in six days' time he must unconditionally leave the office. I warned him to take measures, in the interval, for procuring some other abode. I offered to assist him in this endeavour, if he himself would but take the first step towards a removal. "'And when you finally quit me, Bartleby,' added I, "'I shall see that you go not away entirely unprovided. Six days from this hour, remember.' At the expiration of that period I peeped behind the screen, and, lo, Bartleby was there. I buttoned up my coat, balanced myself, advanced slowly towards him, touched his shoulder, and said, "'The time has come. You must quit this place. I am sorry for you. Here is money. You must go.' "'I would prefer not,' he replied, with his back still towards me. "'You must.' He remained silent. Now, I had an unbounded confidence in this man's common honesty. He had frequently restored to me sixpences and shillings carelessly dropped upon the floor, for I am apt to be very reckless in such shirt-button affairs. The proceeding then which followed will not be deemed extraordinary. Bartleby, said I, I owe you twelve dollars on account. 
here are thirty-two. The odd twenty are yours. Will you take it?' And I handled the bills towards him. But he made no motion. I will leave them here, then, putting them, putting them under a weight on the table. Then, taking my hat and cane and going to the door, I tranquilly turned and added, "'After you have removed your things from these offices, Bartleby, you will of course lock the door, since every one is now gone for the day but you, and, if you please, slip your key underneath the mat, so that I may have it in the morning. I shall not see you again. So good-bye to you. If hereafter, in your new place of abode, I can be of any service to you, do not fail to advise me by letter. Good-bye, Bartleby, and fare you well." But he answered not a word. Like the last column of some ruined temple, he remained standing mute and solitary in the middle of the otherwise deserted room. As I walked home in a pensive mood, my vanity got the better of my pity. I could not but highly plume myself on my masterly management in getting rid of Bartleby. Masterly, I call it, and such it must appear to any dispassionate thinker. The beauty of my procedure seemed to consist in its perfect quietness. There was no vulgar bullying, no bravado of any sort, no choleric hectoring and striding to and fro across the apartment, jerking out vehement commands for Bartleby to bundle himself up with his beggarly traps. Nothing of the kind. Without loudly bidding Bartleby depart, as an inferior genius might have done, I assumed the ground that depart he must, and upon that assumption built all I had to say. The more I thought about my procedure, the more I was charmed with it. Nevertheless, next morning, upon awakening, I had my doubts. I had somehow slept off the fumes of vanity. One of the coolest and wisest hours a man has is just after he awakes in the morning. My procedure seemed as sagacious as ever, but only in theory. How it would prove in practice, there was the rub. It was truly a beautiful thought to have assumed Bartleby's departure, but after all that assumption was simply my own, and none of Bartleby's. The great point was not whether I had assumed that he would quit me, but whether he would prefer so to do. He was more of a man of preferences than assumptions. After breakfast I walked downtown, arguing the probabilities pro and con. One moment I thought it would prove a miserable failure, and Bartleby would be found all alive at my office as usual. The next moment it seemed certain that I should see his chair empty, and so I kept veering about. At the corner of Broadway and Canal Street I saw quite an excited group of people standing in earnest conversation. "'I'll take odds he doesn't,' said a voice as I passed. "'Doesn't go?' "'Done,' said I. "'Put up your money.' I was instinctively putting my hand in my pocket to produce my own when I remembered that this was an election day. 
the words i had overheard bore no reference to bartleby but to the success or non-success of some candidate for the mayoralty in my intent frame of mind i had as it were imagined that all broadway shared in my excitement and were debating the same question with me i passed on very thankful that the uproar of the street screened my momentary absent-mindedness as i had intended i was earlier than usual at my office door i stood listening for a moment all was still he must be gone i tried the knob the door was locked yes my procedure had worked to a charm he indeed must be vanished yet a certain melancholy mixed with this i was almost sorry for my brilliant success i was fumbling under the door-mat for the key which bartleby was to have left there for me when accidentally my knee knocked against a panel producing a summoning sound and in response a voice came to me from within not yet i am occupied it was bartleby i was thunderstruck for an instant i stood like the man who pipe in mouth was killed one cloudless afternoon long ago in virginia by a summer lightning at his own warm open window he was killed and remained leaning out there upon the dreamy afternoon till some one touched him when he fell not gone i murmured at last but again obeying that wondrous ascendancy which the inscrutable scrivener had over me and from which ascendancy for all my chafing i could not completely escape i slowly went downstairs and out into the street and while walking round the block considered what i should next do in this unheard-of perplexity turn the man out by an actual thrusting i could not to drive him away by calling him hard names would not do calling in the police was an unpleasant idea and yet permit him to enjoy his cadaverous triumph over me this too i could not think of what was to be done or if nothing could be done was there anything further that i could assume in the matter yes as before i had prospectively assumed that bartleby would depart so now i might retrospectively assume that departed he was in the legitimate carrying out of this assumption i might enter my office in a great hurry and pretending not to see bartleby at all walk straight against him as if he were air such a proceeding would in a singular degree have the appearance of a home thrust it was hardly possible that bartleby could withstand such an application of the doctrine of assumptions but upon second thoughts the success of the plan seemed rather dubious i resolved to argue the matter over with him bartleby said i entering the office with a quietly severe expression i am seriously displeased i am pained bartleby i had thought better of you i had imagined you of such a gentlemanly organization 
that in any delicate dilemma a slight hint would have suffice in short an assumption but it appears i am deceived why i added unaffectedly starting you have not even touched that money yet pointing to it just where i had left it the evening previous he answered nothing will you or will you not quit me i now demanded in a sudden passion advancing close to him i would prefer not to quit you he replied gently emphasizing the not what earthly right have you to stay here do you pay rent do you pay my taxes or is this property yours he answered nothing are you ready to go on and write now are your eyes recovered could you copy a small paper for me this morning or help examine a few lines or step round to the post-office in a word will you do anything at all to give a colouring to your refusal to depart the premises he silently retired into his hermitage i was now in such a state of nervous resentment that i thought it but prudent to check myself at present from further demonstrations bartleby and i were alone i remembered the tragedy of the unfortunate adams and the still more unfortunate colt in the solitary office of the latter and how poor colt being dreadfully incensed by adams and imprudently permitting himself to get wildly excited was at unawares hurried into his fatal act an act which certainly no man could possibly deplore more than the actor himself often it had occurred to me in my ponderings upon the street that had that altercation taken place in the public street or at a private residence it would not have terminated as it did it was the circumstance of being alone in a solitary office upstairs of a building entirely unhallowed by humanizing domestic associations an uncarpeted office doubtless of a dusty haggard sort of appearance this it must have been which greatly helped to enhance the irritable desperation of the hapless colt but when this old atom of resentment rose in me and tempted me concerning bartleby i grappled him and threw him how why simply by recalling the divine injunction a new commandment give i unto you that ye love one another yes this it was that saved me aside from higher considerations charity often operates as a vastly wise and prudent principle a great safeguard to its possessor men have committed murder for jealousy's sake and anger's sake and hatred's sake and selfishness sake and spiritual pride's sake but no man that ever i heard of ever committed a diabolical murder for sweet charity's sake mere self-interest then if no better motive can be enlisted should especially with high-tempered men prompt all beings to charity and philanthropy at any rate upon the occasion in question i strove to drown my exasperated feelings towards the scrivener by benevolently construing his conduct poor 
fellow, poor fellow, thought I, he didn't mean anything, and besides, he has seen hard times, and ought to be indulged. I endeavoured also immediately to occupy myself, and at the same time to comfort my despondency. I tried to fancy that in the course of the morning, at such time as might prove agreeable to him, Bartleby, of his own free accord, would emerge from his hermitage, and take up some decided line of march in the direction of the door. But no. Half-past twelve o'clock came, Turkey began to glow in the face, overturn his inkstand, and become generally obstreperous. Nippers abated down into quietude and courtesy. Ginger not munched his noon apple and bartleby remained standing at his window in one of his profoundest dead-wall reveries will it be credited ought i to acknowledge it that afternoon i left the office without saying any further word to him some days now passed during which at leisure intervals i looked a little into edwards on the will and priestly on necessity under the circumstances those books induced a salutary feeling gradually i slid into the persuasion that these troubles of mind touching the scrivener had been all predestinated from eternity and Bartleby was billeted upon me for some mysterious purpose of an all-wise providence, which it was not for a mere mortal like me to fathom. Yes, Bartleby, stay here beyond your screen, thought I. I shall persecute you no more. You are harmless and noiseless as any of these old chairs. In short, I never feel so private as when I know you are here. At last I see it, I feel it, I penetrate to the predestined purpose of my life. I am content. Others may have loftier parts to enact, but my mission in this world, Bartleby, is to furnish you with an office room for such period as you may see fit to remain. I believe that this wise and blessed frame of mind would have continued with me, had it not been for the unsolicited and uncharitable remarks obtruded upon me by my professional friends who visited the rooms. But thus it often is that the constant friction of illiberal minds wears out at last the best resolves of the more generous. Though, to be sure, when I reflected upon it, it was not strange that people entering my office should be struck by the peculiar aspect of the unaccountable Bartleby, and so be tempted to throw out some sinister observations concerning him. Sometimes an attorney having business with me, and calling at my office, and finding no one but the scrivener there, would undertake to obtain some sort of precise information from him touching my whereabouts. But without heeding his idle talk, Bartleby would remain standing immovable in the middle of the room. So, after contemplating him in that position for a while, the attorney would depart, no wiser than he came. Also, when a reference was going on, and the room full of lawyers and witnesses 
and business was driving fast, some deeply occupied legal gentlemen present, seeing Bartleby wholly unemployed, would request him to run round to his, the legal gentleman's, office, and fetch some papers for him. Thereupon Bartleby would tranquilly decline, and yet remain idle as before. Then the lawyer would give a great stare, and turn to me. And what could I say? At last I was made aware that all through the circle of my professional acquaintance a whisper of wonder was running round, having reference to the strange creature I kept at my office. This worried me very much, and as the idea came upon me of his possibly turning out a long-lived man, and keep occupying my chambers, and denying my authority, and perplexing my visitors, and scandalizing my professional reputation, and casting a general gloom over the premises, keeping soul and body together to the last upon his savings, for doubtless he spent but half a dime a day, and in the end perhaps outlive me, and claim possession of my office by right of his perpetual occupancy, as all these dark anticipations crowded upon me more and more, and my friends continually intruded their relentless remarks upon the apparition in my room, a great change was wrought in me. I resolved to gather all my faculties together, and forever rid me of this intolerable incubus. Ere revolving any complicated project, however, adapted to this end, I first simply suggested to Bartleby the propriety of his permanent departure. In a calm and serious tone, I commended the idea to his careful and mature consideration. But having taken three days to meditate upon it, he apprised me that his original determination remained the same, in short, that he still preferred to abide with me. "'What shall I do?' I now said to myself, buttoning up my coat to the last button. "'What shall I do? What ought I to do? What does conscience say I should do with this man, or rather ghost?' rid myself of him i must go he shall but how you will not thrust him the poor pale passive mortal you will not thrust such a helpless creature out of your door you will not honour yourself by such cruelty no i will not i cannot do that rather would i let him live and die here and then mason up his remains in the wall. And what then will you do? For all your coaxing he will not budge. Bribes he leaves under your own paperweight on your table. In short, it is quite plain that he prefers to cling to you. Then something severe, something unusual, must be done. What? Surely you will not have him collared by a constable, and commit his innocent pallor to the common jail? And upon what ground would you procure such a thing to be done? A vagrant, is he? What, he a vagrant, a wanderer, who refuses to budge? It is because he will not be a vagrant, then, that you seek to count him as a vagrant. 
That is too absurd. No visible means of support. There I have him. Wrong again, for indubitably he does support himself, and that is the only unanswerable proof that any man can show of his possessing the means so to do. No more, then, since he will not quit me, I must quit him. I will change my offices. I will move elsewhere, and give him fair notice that if I find him on my new premises, I will then proceed against him as a common trespasser. Acting accordingly next day, I thus addressed him. I find these chambers too far from the city hall. The air is unwholesome. In a word, I propose to remove my offices next week and shall no longer require your services. I tell you this now, in order that you may seek another place." He made no reply, and nothing more was said. On the appointed day I engaged carts and men, proceeded to my chambers, and having but little furniture, everything was removed in a few hours. Throughout the scrivener remained standing behind the screen which I directed to be removed the last thing. It was withdrawn, and being folded up like a huge folio, left him the motionless occupant of a naked room. I stood in the entry watching him for a moment, while something from within me upbraided me. I re-entered, with my hand in my pocket, and, and my heart in my mouth. Good-bye, Bartleby. I am going. Good-bye, and God some way bless you. And take that, slipping something in his hand. But it dropped upon the floor, and then, strange to say, I tore myself from him whom I had so longed to be rid of. Established in my new quarters for a day or two, I kept the door locked and started at every footfall in the passages. When I returned to my rooms after any little absence, I would pause at the threshold for an instant, and attentively listen, ere applying my key. But these fears were needless. Bartleby never came nigh me. I thought all was going well, when a perturbed-looking stranger visited me inquiring whether I was the person who had recently occupied rooms at number Wall Street. Full of forebodings, I replied that I was. "'Then, sir,' said the stranger, who proved a lawyer, "'you are responsible for the man who left there. He refuses to do any copying. He refuses to do anything. He says he prefers not to, and he refuses to quit the premises.' "'I am very sorry, sir,' said I, with assumed tranquillity, but an inward tremor. "'But really, the man you allude to is nothing to me. He is no relation or apprentice of mine that you should hold me responsible for him. In mercy's name, who is he?' "'I certainly cannot inform you. I know nothing about him. Formerly I employed him as a copyist, but he has done nothing for me now for some time past.' I shall settle him, then. Good morning, sir." Several days passed, and I heard nothing more. 
and though I often felt a charitable prompting to call at the place and see poor Bartleby, yet a certain squeamishness of I know not what withheld me. All is over with him by this time, thought I at last, when through another week no further intelligence reached me. But coming to my room the day after, I found several persons waiting at my door in a high state of nervous excitement. "'That's the man! Here he comes!' cried the foremost one, whom I recognized as the lawyer who had previously called upon me alone. "'You must take him away, sir, at once,' cried a portly person among them, advancing upon me, and whom I knew to be the landlord of number Wall Street. "'These gentlemen, my tenants, cannot stand it any longer. Mr. B.' pointing to the lawyer, has turned him out of his room, and he now persists in haunting the building generally, sitting upon the banisters of the stairs by day, and sleeping in the entry by night. Everybody is concerned. Clients are leaving the offices. Some fears are entertained of a mob. Something you must do, and that without delay. Aghast at this torrent, I fell back before it and would fain have locked myself in my new quarters. In vain I persisted that Bartleby was nothing to me, no more than to any one else. In vain. I was the last person known to have anything to do with him, and they held me to the terrible account. Fearful then of being exposed in the papers, as one person presently obscurely threatened, considered the matter, and at length said that if the lawyer would give me a confidential interview with the scrivener, in his, the lawyer's, own room, I would that afternoon strive my best to rid them of the nuisance they complained of. Going upstairs to my old haunt, there was Bartleby, silently sitting upon the banister at the landing. "'What are you doing here, Bartleby?' said I. "'Sitting upon the banister?' he mildly replied. I motioned him into the lawyer's room, who then left us. "'Bartleby,' said I, "'are you aware that you are the cause of great tribulation to me by persisting in occupying the entry after being dismissed from the office?' No answer. "'Now, one of two things must take place. Either you must do something, or something must be done to you.' Now, what sort of business would you like to engage in? Would you like to re-engage in copying for some one? No, I would prefer not to make any change. Would you like a clerkship in a dry-goods store? There is too much confinement about that. No, I would not like a clerkship. But I am not particular. Too much confinement, I cried. Why, you keep yourself confined all the time. I would prefer not to take a clerkship, he rejoined, as if to settle that little item at once. How would a bartender's business suit you? There's no trying of the eyesight in that. I would not like it at all, though, as I said before, I am not particular. His unwanted wordiness inspirited me. I returned to the charge. Well, then, would you like to travel through the country collecting bills for the merchants? That would improve your health. No, I would prefer to be doing something else. 
how then would going as a companion to europe to entertain some young gentleman with your conversation how would that suit you oh, not at all it does not strike me that there is anything definite about that i like to be stationary but i am not particular stationary you shall be then i cried now losing all patience and for the first time in all my exasperating connection with him fairly flying into a passion if you do not go away from these premises before night i shall feel bound indeed i am bound to to, to quit the premises myself i rather absurdly concluded knowing not with what possible threat to try to frighten his immobility into compliance despairing of all further efforts i was precipitately leaving him when a final thought occurred to me one which had not been wholly unindulged before bartleby in the kindest tone i could assume under such exciting circumstances will you go home with me now not to my office but my dwelling and remain there till we can conclude upon some convenient arrangement for you at your leisure come let us start now right away no at present i would prefer not to make any change at all i answered nothing but effectually dodging every one by the suddenness and rapidity of my flight rushed from the building ran up wall street towards broadway and jumping into the first omnibus was soon removed from pursuit as soon as tranquillity returned i distinctly perceived that i had now done all that i possibly could both in respect to the demands of the landlord and his tenants and with regard to my own desire and sense of duty to benefit bartleby and shield him from rude persecution i now strove to be entirely carefree and quiescent and my conscience justified me in the attempt though indeed it was not so successful as i could have wished so fearful was i of being again hunted out by the incensed landlord and his exasperated tenants that surrendering my business to nippers for a few days i drove about the upper part of the town and through the suburbs in my rockaway crossed over to jersey city and hoboken and paid fugitive visits to manhattanville and astoria in fact i almost lived in my rockaway for the time when again i entered my office lo a note from the landlady lay upon the desk i opened it with trembling hands it informed me that the writer had sent to the police and had bartleby removed to the tombs as a vagrant moreover since i knew more about him than any one else he wished me to appear at that place and make a suitable statement of the facts these tidings had a conflicting effect upon me at first i was indignant but at last almost approved the landlord's energetic summary disposition had led him to adopt a procedure which i do not think i would have decided upon myself and yet as a last resort under such peculiar circumstances it seemed the only plan as i afterwards learned the poor scrivener when told that he must be conducted to the tombs offered not the slightest obstacle 
but in his pale, unmoving way silently acquiesced. Some of the compassionate and curious bystanders joined the party, and headed by one of the constables arm in arm with Bartleby, the silent procession filed its way through all the noise and heat and joy of the roaring thoroughfares at noon. The same day I received the notes I went to the tombs, or to speak more properly, the halls of justice. Seeking the right officer, I stated the purpose of my call, and was informed that the individual I described was indeed within. I then assured the functionary that Bartleby was a perfectly honest man, and greatly to be compassionated, however unaccountably eccentric. I narrated all I knew, and closed by suggesting the idea of letting him remain in as indulgent confinement as possible till something less harsh might be done, though indeed I hardly knew what. At all events, if nothing else could be decided upon, the almshouse must receive him. I then begged to have an interview. Being under no disgraceful charge, and quite serene and harmless in all his ways, they had permitted him freely to wander about the prison, and especially in the enclosed grass-platted yard thereof. And so I found him there standing all alone in the quietest of the yards, his face towards a high wall, while all around, from the narrow slits of the jail windows, I thought I saw peering out upon him the eyes of murderers and thieves. "'Bartleby! I know you,' he said, without looking round, "'and I want nothing to say to you.' "'It was not I that brought you here, Bartleby,' said I keenly pained at his implied suspicion. And to you this should not be so vile a place. Nothing reproachful attaches to you by being here. And see, it is not so sad a place as one might think. Look, there is the sky, and here is the grass. I know where I am, he replied, but would say nothing more. So I left him. As I entered the corridor again, a broad meat-like man in an apron accosted me, and jerking his thumb over his shoulder, said, "'Is that your friend?' "'Yes.' "'Does he want to starve? If he does, let him live on the prison fare, that's all.' "'Who are you?' asked I, not knowing what to make of such an unofficially speaking person in such a place. "'I am the grub-man.' Such gentlemen as have friends here hire me to provide them with something good to eat. Is this so? said I, turning to the turnkey. He said it was. Well, then, said I, slipping some silver into the grub man's hands, or so they called him, I want you to give particular attention to my friend there. Let him have the best dinner you can get, and you must be as polite to him as possible. "'Introduce me, will you?' said the grub-man, looking at me with an expression which seemed to say he was all impatience for an opportunity to give a specimen of his breeding. Thinking it would prove of benefit to the scrivener, I acquiesced, and, asking the grub-man his name, went up with him to Bartleby. "'Bartleby, this is Mr. Cutlets. You will find him very useful to you.' "'Your servant, sir,' 
"'Your servant?' said the grubman, making a low salutation behind his apron. "'Hope you find it pleasant here, sir. Spacious grounds, cool apartments, sir. Hope you'll stay with us some time. I'll try to make it agreeable.' "'May Mrs. Cutlets and I have the pleasure of your company to dinner, sir, in Mrs. Cutlets' private room?' "'I prefer not to dine to-day,' said Bartleby, turning away. "'It would disagree with me. I am unused to dinners.' So saying, he slowly moved to the other side of the enclosure, and took up a position fronting the dead wall. "'How's this?' said the grubman, addressing me with a stare of astonishment. "'He's odd, ain't he?' "'I think he is a little deranged,' said I, sadly. "'Deranged? Deranged, is it? Well, now, upon my word, I thought that friend of yourn was a gentleman forger. They are always pale and genteel-like, them forgers. I can't pity em. Can't help it, sir. Did you know Monroe Edwards?' he added touchingly, and paused. Then, laying his hand pityingly on my shoulder, sighed, "'He died a consumption at Sing Sing. So you weren't acquainted with Monroe?' "'No. I was never socially acquainted with any forgers. But I cannot stop longer. Look to my friend yonder. You will not lose by it. I will see you again.' Some few days after this, I again obtained admission to the tombs, and went through the corridors in quest of Bartleby, but without finding him. "'I saw him coming from his cell not long ago,' said a turnkey. "'Maybe he's gone to loiter in the yards.' So I went in that direction. "'Are you looking for the silent man?' said another turnkey, passing me. "'Yonder he lies, sleeping in the yard there.' "'Tis not twenty minutes since I saw him lie down.' The yard was entirely quiet. It was not accessible to the common prisoners. The surrounding walls, of amazing thickness, kept off all sounds behind them. The Egyptian character of the masonry weighed upon me with its gloom. But a soft imprisoned turf grew underfoot. The heart of the eternal pyramids, it seemed, wherein by some strange magic through the clefts grass-seed dropped by birds had sprung. Strangely huddled at the base of the wall, his knees drawn up and lying on his side, his head touching the cold stones, I saw the wasted Bartleby. But nothing stirred. I paused, then went close up to him, stooped over, and saw that his dim eyes were open. Otherwise he seemed profoundly sleeping. Something prompted me to touch him. I felt his hand, when a tingling shiver ran up my arm and down my spine to my feet. The round face of the grubman peered upon me now. His dinner is ready. Won't he dine to-day, either? Or does he live without dining?' lives without dining, said I, and closed his eyes. Ay, he's asleep, ain't he? With kings and counsellors, murmured I. There would seem little need of proceeding further in this history. 
imagination will readily supply the meagre recital of poor Bartleby's interment. But, ere parting with the reader, let me say that if this little narrative has sufficiently interested him to awaken curiosity as to who Bartleby was, and what manner of life he led prior to the present narrator's making his acquaintance, I can only reply that in such curiosity I fully share, but am wholly unable to gratify it. Yet here I hardly know whether I should divulge one little item of rumour which came to my ear a few months after the scrivener's decease. Upon what basis it rested I could never ascertain, and hence how true it is I cannot now tell. But inasmuch as this vague report has not been without certain strange, suggestive interest to me, however sad, it may prove the same with some others, and so I will briefly mention it. The report was this, that Bartleby had been a subordinate clerk in the dead-letter office at Washington, from which he had been suddenly removed by a change in the administration. When I think over this rumour, I cannot adequately express the emotions which seize me. Dead letters! Does it not sound like dead men? Conceive a man by nature and misfortune prone to a pallid hopelessness. Can any business seem more fitted to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for the flames? For by the cartload they are annually burned. Sometimes from out the folded paper the pale clerk takes a ring. The finger it was meant for, perhaps, moulders in the grave. A banknote sent in swiftest charity. He whom it would relieve, nor eats, nor hungers any more. Pardon for those who died despairing, hope for those who died unhoping, good tidings for those who died stifled by unrelieved calamities. On errands of life, these letters speed to death. Ah, Bartleby! Ah, humanity! End of Bartleby the Scrivener A Story of Wall Street by Herman Melville Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hello, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Will. And we're going to talk about Bartleby the Scrivener, a story of Wall Street, first published in Putnam's Magazine, November and December, 1853. And uh, I, I think I've read this before, but maybe not. Maybe I just read a lot about it. Um, who had read this before, I assume, Evan I, I read this in English in college. Hmm. I had forgotten I read, I read when you first mentioned it, but then when I started listening to it, like, oh, I know this story. Hmm. Yeah, high school for me. High school. Not for me. I never read it. Well, um, you read it like me uh, at least once for the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. How did you experience it? Um, I think it's fucking great. Like, <laughs> I don't know how I missed this story before in my life. It's so funny and so good. Yeah, now I want to I want to talk about yeah, it's not a comedy because it doesn't have a happy ending. 
However, mm-hmm. it is very humorous, and yet uh, there's no jokes, really. I mean, you could sort of stretch them to be jokes, but it's more like a funny... It's almost like Seinfeld style of situational character observation stuff. Uh, but it's also supposed to be pretty sad and existential, I think. Um, yeah, I didn't catch it my first read three years ago, but this time, I mean, having now come to terms with my mental health and my struggles with depression. I, I felt this as a story of a very depressed individual. Bartleby, you mean? Bartleby, yes, Bartleby. And so it hit me emotionally in a mm. way that it hadn't the last time. Mm. Last time was intellectual, like, oh, this is an interesting story. Melville, Mel, well, we, we went through the whole commentary. I mean, we used to talk about it, about what was Melville trying to say and is this, is this a oh, commentary yeah. on his writing? But, I took this as a depression story at this time, and it hit me in the feels. Yeah, so to speak. Uh, I want to. I, I want to <laughs> talk about all the different ways of reading it. Um, but I first, I, I think we should set aside a moment of silence for all the poor kids who are forced to read this in school, and then forced to try <laughs> and understand uh, what the themes were, or something like that, because. Honestly, if you do a search for Bartleby, there's t- obviously it's it's a big thing in U.S. schools, and there's a ton of explainers on YouTube for it, and they're all like four minutes. <laughs> and um, those poor kids, man. Oh man, this is uh, this is very hard to classify. One one way I would want to classify it is it's a weird tale like that you would get in weird tales. Yeah. Cadaverous. It's a cadaverous, cadaverous. story. There's a good adjective. Uh, you know, it's a lot like uh, uh, Fitz James O'Brien's *The Lost Room*. Um, I was thinking a lot about um, who's the European guy from uh, German-speaking Jew uh, wrote about a guy who turns into an, a big insect. Kafka. Kafka, right? Um, very Kafka-esque in other respects. But also a little bit like Poe's uh, William Wilson. Uh, is you know obviously that's not a happy story <laughs> or a funny story. But um, I also uh, one way I engage with it is it's a piece of science fiction. How <laughs> oh, is it science fiction, Justin? Uh, I was thinking you know like um, the reason he's act- Bartleby's acting this way is because he's actually like an android like Data from Star Trek. He's been beamed down to Earth of the past, and he has to wait at the landing rendezvous point <laughs> and stay near the rendezvous point for an unknown amount of time. <laughs> okay. No, there are problems with this theory. One of them is that he seems to require food. But there's an episode of Next Generation where almost the exact same thing happens, where uh, data... Went up in San Francisco in the past. Uh, there, uh, that's another one, but there's one where it's just data by himself, where he he crash lands on a planet carrying some radioactive suitcase, and his memory is damaged, and then he acts very like oddly, and he's cadaverous looking and pale. And, I don't remember uh, that one at all. It's a good episode. I don't remember. I, 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 don't remember. I, I don't know. I, I think the ghost story angle works better than the. Uh, the the sci-fi story angle. I agree, it doesn't fit, but it yeah. fit for a while. And then uh, the, I think the most important way of reading it is actually not thinking about Bartleby at all, 
but rather it's all what the law it's all about the lawyer really because he spends <laughs> if you think about it he spends the the, fir- the first half hour of the 90 minutes or however long the story is um there's no mention of i prefer not to in fact it's mostly a description of his other clerks and um the uh the other scriveners and the uh, ginger nut and you know john jacob astor right yeah, and it's about him and so when when we think about how we would act in that situation it's all about us so i've had a roommate who was a terrible roommate and who didn't pay his fair share of the rent um and you confront them and they're like i prefer not to pay <laughs> i'm like well this is all about me yeah. <laughs> right i mean there's there's all sorts of there's uh, it, it, other people are inscrutable bartleby is inscrutable in a certain sense and yet there's a way of looking at it so we can understand you know the themes and think about what what's going on in bartleby's mind but really it's all told through the lawyer's point of view and he he's an extraordinarily strange person as well well first of all he complains about having having gotten this job and the job getting abolished and he's upset about that the being the master of chancery it, it which is not not a not a fake thing, by the way. No, no, it's not a fake thing. It was it was it was very much English law and English uh, English courts. But it's like he says, sometime prior to the period in which this little history begins, my advocation has been largely increased. The good old office, now extinct in the state of New York, of a master and chancery had been conferred upon me. It was not a very arduous office, but very pleasantly remunerative. In other words, he doesn't work hard; he gets lots of money. I seldom lose my temper, much more seldom indulge in dangerous indignation at wrongs and outrages. But I must be permitted to be rash here to declare that I consider the sudden and violent abrogation of the office of Master and Chancery by the new Constitution as a premature act, insomuch as I counted upon a life lease of the profits, whereas I only received those of a few short years. But this is, by the way, no, you spent an entire paragraph complaining that you didn't get, that you lost it's, your sign here, buddy. Well, also, I want to point None out that... None of these people have, have much of a, a work ethic, actually. There's a no. on Bartleby, but no. he himself, yes. like the narrator, even though he's he's got to do this copy stuff, you know, and do this real estate, it seemed like real estate law, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of things. That's why he was working for John Jacob Astor. Mm-hmm. Yep. But he'd prefer not to do that, a lot of that stuff too. And he's not very ambitious. He doesn't oh. move to the practice of anything better. Yeah. And then you got uh, Turkey, who's he's drunk by noon mm-hmm. every yep. day. Mm-hmm. And what's the other guy's name? Nipples? <laughs> Nippers. <laughs> Nippers. 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 He's not going to last long in this career. You don't, you don't get the sense. And their wages are low. <laughs> He's upset about everything, yeah. Or he could last forever. Ginger Nut's only there because his dad wants him there. If he if he's allowed to listen to music <laughs> at work, he'll be fine. I mean, this is all before that, right? This is before all. So what? Are, what are their? What is their uh, drug of choice? It's ginger cakes. ginger cakes. Basically, they're ginger snaps or ginger cookies, right? Ginger nut well, is turkey a, comes drunk at noon. Yes, day. and and that's what he recommends other people do too. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Take <laughs> you your dinner. See the bar we do it at one point. But yeah. that's the point. That's the kind of the point is like the employer here, the lawyer. He he knows that turkey is useless in the afternoons, so he doesn't even like 
fire him or anything like he just says you know that's how it is <laughs> and the uh, nippers is there's an interesting he's great in the afternoons and terrible in the morning well and nippers is kind of a criminal right capitalism i think is, is in the yes. backdrop here yes this and i think maybe the mention of john jacob astor kind of makes that clear uh you know this is still in that transitional period before the clock really took over before it really they're working on saturday right? bud or, even on the in the factories, it was still like yeah, the workers basically managed things day to day. They had their their Saint Mondays, and you know whatever other kind of vernacular traditions they carry over from agricultural life into the factory. And managers couldn't do much about it. You know, you could kind of complain, but workers had all the knowledge, right? The old saying was the manager's brains are another workman's cap. Uh, it was kind of kind of had to deal with what they wanted. It wasn't until the early 20th century of scientific management that managers could really lay claim to workers' time the way, like in a modern times, Charlie Chaplin way. Time and motion studies. What were you going to say, Yeah, so this is is still that earlier period. Yeah. Oh, um, uh, if I remember, I'll come back to it. Okay. But, um, yeah, um, well... Oh, I was going to say is Nippers is kind of a criminal. He holds himself out to be a lawyer to like people. Nipper, oh, yeah. Nippers is is the one. He's he's yeah, bad. He's this pep- he's, yeah, he's he's bad in the morning, but he had other qualities that were bad in the story, right? He like holds himself out to have clients. He mm. does like like he's he's a copyist who's holding himself out to be an attorney. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, it, yeah, he's got like sketchy friends who come around. It's, it's almost, it's almost, almost, almost like the Roman patron system. Like among the manifestations of his, uh, his Nipper's diseased ambition was a fondness he had for receiving visits from certain ambiguous-looking fellows in seedy coats, whom he called his clients. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so funny. There's such great language in the story. It's, it's M- M- Melville doing his best. You really get a nice sense of this. This cut. I mean, I mean, this guy puts himself as a master of chancery, but he doesn't work hard. It's not a great office, and when he moves, he mentions that the office was was a was a POS to be to try to get away from Barley. The, the office wasn't great to begin with. It has a really real nice sense of nineteenth century uh, tip of New York sort of uh, locale. I want to read that. You become a lawyer in these days. It's, it's. I'm thinking of like McTee. If you guys ever read McTee, mm-hmm. I've not. Uh, Frank Norris. It's a wonderful novel. But that guy is a dentist. He was just a dentist because he was like working for a dentist and he learned the craft. And then later on, this is like the early 20th century, they call someone who's upset with him calls in. I think it's like his brother-in-law, future brother-in-law, you know, calls the state offices. This guy is practicing dentistry without a license, right? When did these licenses you know, procedures actually get in place in America. I think in these days you can kind of do whatever you want. This mm. is the theme Melville takes up in The Confidence Man. There's all these suspicious people on a boat. Mm. And everyone's just kind of pretending to be different things. I want to I want to read the uh, opening and see. There's some stuff to glean in here. Um, that Oh, that's a great vocab word, Jesse. Uh, to glean is to, like, find something small, like in a field. <laughs> like you're walking yeah. down the street and you see, like, a, a coin or something, right? Um, but there, there's a lot of, a lot to glean in here in the f- opening. I'm a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last 30 years has brought me into more 
than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular set of men, of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written. So he's writing for an audience. He's also old, right? His avocation, <laughs> plural, for the last 30 years has brought him into contact with a singularly set of interesting but yes, as unwritten about men. So it's like this is the first of other biographies that he's going to write of people. And then the next line, I mean the law copyists or scriveners. Right Now, today, we don't have these people. They would be called photocopiers, right? Actual physical, <laughs> physical Xerox machines. Um, there are people who work in offices who do similar jobs. They carry things from place to place. But um, the closest to actually what they're doing in there is more like monk work, right? Mm -hmm. uh, literally copying from one thing to the other. And then they check their work by reading aloud. And having somebody, and I do this with students, like, that's my, when I'm normally working at my normal amount of work, I do this daily. I take student text that they've written, I have them read it to me aloud, including punctuation and capitalization, right, quotation marks, looking for perfection in sentences and making sure that everything is exactly as it should be. <laughs> it's kind of a weird job. Uh, but we're doing it as a creative work as opposed to copying from one document to another. I have known very many of them professionally and privately. And if I, if I pleased could relate a diverse histories at which good natured gentlemen might smile and sentimental souls might weep. He actually is doing that with this story, right? Melville. He, Melville's not a lawyer, however. But I waive the biographies of all other Scriveners for a few passages in the life of Bartleby, who was a Scrivener of the strangest I ever heard, saw or heard of, while other law copyists I might write the complete life of. Bartleby, nothing of that sort can be done. I believe that no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. It is an irreparable loss of lit to literature. <laughs> Literature. He's saying, he's saying, <laughs> this piece of work that I'm writing, it's the best that it possibly could be <laughs> in a certain sense. Bartleby was one of those beings of whom nothing is ascertainable except from the original sources. Who's that? AKA him. <laughs> and in his, his case, those are very small. What my, my own astonished eyes saw of Bartleby, that is all I know of him, except indeed one vague report which will appear in the sequel. Now, most people reading this are not reading it in the original text. The sequel here, he's talking about the second part of the serialization of this story. The, this kind of artifact is so interesting to me because you wouldn't know that unless you're reading it from the original when it comes over two months, right? Uh, and that means that he knows that it's going to be serialized in this magazine over two months. Because that's what we indeed get at the end of the story is the fact that Bartleby had a previous career, like our well, a lawyer who's now embarking on a literary career, <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> after being what a copy to be a writer uh, 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 he well <laughs> most lawyers do <laughs> um i want to do you know at least one science fiction 
Nope, two, no, three science fiction writers who were or are lawyers. So, yeah. Um, it, when he describes himself, um, he says, In primus, I am a man who, for his, from his youth upwards, has been filled with the profound conviction that the easiest way of life is the best. <laughs> I'm right there with you, bud. <laughs> Hence, though I belong to a profession proverbially energetic and nervous, even to turbulence at times, yet nothing of that sort have I ever suffered to invade my peace. I am one of those unambitious lawyers who never addresses a jury or in any way draws down public applause, but in cool tranquility of a snug retreat, do a snug business among rich men's bonds and mortgages and title deeds. So he's actually chosen this life for himself. He thinks it's the perfect way of being. And yet somehow it's dissatisfactory. He is snug business among rich men's bonds and mortgages and title deeds. So he is keeping track of rich people's money. Mm-hmm. All who know me consider me eminently safe, uh, an eminently safe man. Get it? They, he is the thing that locks up, right? There's that. Yeah, yeah it's a nice pun. It's yeah. nice. And, but then he says, the late J- John Jacob Astor, a personage little given to poetic enthusiasm. Notice all the negatives here that come up had no hesitation in pronouncing my first grand point to be prudence, <laughs> my next method. I do not speak of in, it in vanity, but simply record the fact that I was not em- unemployed in my profession by the late John Jacob Astor. I was not unemployed in my profession. <laughs> a name which I will admit I love to repeat, for it hath a rounded and orbicular sound to it. John Jacob Astor. John no, he likes Jacob drop. Aster. And rings like unto bullion. <laughs> I will freely add that I was not insensible to the late John Jacob Astor's good opinion. <laughs> so he is complimenting himself on the fact that John Jacob Astor let him do business with him. Mm-hmm. And now he's late, right? He's dead. That this John Jacob Astor is not the one of the later twentieth uh, or uh, nineteenth century, and you know, there's like a John Jacob Astor the sixth. If you type in John Jacob Astor, this is the first John Jacob Astor, the one who was you know made the, the fur trade. Yeah. Now th- that yeah, I think, kind of- yeah, I think that that combined with the fact that this Master of Chancery, um, that's in the next line down. The good office now extinct of the state of New York, uh, extinct in the state of New York of a master of chancery has been conferred upon me. I can, and next line down, that I consider the sudden violent abrogation of the master of chancery by the new constitution, capital C. He's talking, he's telling you how old this story is. It's not set in 1853 like a lot of people seem to think. It's set way earlier, right? This is like the uh, approximately 1825 or something, yeah. right? Uh, he's uh, this is you know the John Jacob Astor stuff is earlier than that even. Astor's he mentions that Astor's dead, so the latest this could be is like uh, eight early 1800s. I, I'm pretty sure Maybe going by memory. 30s, yeah. Like um, Okay, so but this is an interesting Pacific connection in this story, actually. Go for it. Because John Jacob Astor did achieve this kind of transcontinental fur trade in Astoria in Oregon, 
was Astoria comes up after him. Yep. Astoria think, doesn't come up. But I know. I think it does. What comes up? Jesse, you're wrong. So I just looked it up. Mm-hmm. So – in 1846, in New York, there was a constitutional convention, and among the things that were abolished were the Court for the Correction of Errors and the Court of Chancery. Ah, okay, you may be right. The ca- capitalization on the um, on the Aster died. What's that? that up. Look up when Aster died. Uh yeah, the, you have to look up the first Aster. Um, so, 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 so we know he lost. Yeah, 1848. That's a good yeah. year to die. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, so. oh, wait, yeah. But how, there's, yeah very historically I will point out Astoria does come up. Um, so fearful was I of being again hunted out of the incensed landlord and his exasperated tenants. This is very much a metaphor for the United States, I think. That the surrendering of my business to nippers for a few days, I drove about the upper part of the town and through the suburbs in my rockaway. Close, uh, crossed over Jersey City and Hoboken and paid fugitive visits to Manhattanville and Astoria. In fact, I almost lived in my Rockaway for that, for the time. So, in a certain sense. That's a different Astoria than I was thinking of. Ah, okay. Yeah. I, I, I think like one of the ways of viewing this story is that it's, uh, he's like an Indian, (laughs) right? He's an Indian um, who refuses to leave uh, to go to the reservation. You mean you're talking about Bartleby? I mean, you do have Yeah, Bartleby. I mean, Wall Street itself. Indeed. You guys know what Wall Street is named after? It's named after the wall that the Dutch put up. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> if I didn't know I think that, it'd be that's Peter Leinbaugh, the historian, said, like, one of the first... Like one of those important sites in New York is named after a, uh, an active enclosure, right? Like oh yeah, colonial colonial enclosure. But then their their office is all walls, like out the window are just walls, yeah, right? Which is very much a metaphor for mm-hmm. yeah being trapped into trapped in the position and. But he's looking out the window at nothing, on. right? Because he's staring at the walls at the start, and he dies like curled up facing the wall as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's he's treated. I mean, the, the, that metaphor of the dead letter office. It's it's pretty interesting. But um, I'll go on a slight tangent here. Um, you know those shows like Touched by an Angel. <laughs> yes. There's other ones like that, right? Uh, yeah. t- Touched by an Angel. I I, I don't re- remember the plot exactly, but basically, there's some family. Uh, they have. Uh, some sort of problem, and then an angel comes and sort of solves the problem for them. Oh, thank you, angel. Yeah, um, it's a kind of a Christian show, mm. um, and there's there was other ones like it. the The science fiction equivalent uh, is called Quantum Leap, where a mm-hmm. guy from the future, or whatever, go tra- time travels back to other people's oh. existences. Um, and solves life problems uh, for people. That's right. right? Or, 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 or the A-Team, for that matter. <laughs> well, there's no time travel in there, but that's no, definitely... A-Team is more like... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, yes, but they solve it with guns. <laughs> which is... Yes, but they still solve problems. <laughs> I agree, Paul. Um, <laughs> but I don't... I, I, don't uh, I, I wanted to bring this up because there's one that's kind of... Um, uh, interesting. It's, you know, the Hallmark Channel is a channel in the United States that's, um, casually associated with sort of Christian and niceness. 
um, <laughs> Christian niceness. And they had a show um, called Signed, Sealed, and Delivered, which is about people working at a dead letter office uh, returning the things that go astray to the, the rightful recipients. Um, and what happens at the end of the story is we get that sequel that he promised us, uh, which is that Bartleby had previously worked at the dead letter office in Washington. Now, uh, the dead letters are addresses on, on pieces of mail that have, are undeliverable. Either the place doesn't exist anymore because the building burned down or the person there is not there in a certain strange way. And it doesn't only include letters like, um, you know, uh, dear John, I miss you, but also includes items. People used, uh, the mail just as we do today to send objects to loved ones and things needed for business. And if you get the address wrong and it has no return address, then those things are redirected from the delivery attempt to a place called a dead letter office. I think they've changed the name recently. Now, if you worked at one of these places, your job is to, and I think we get this in the end of the story, is to uh, open up the letter, um, see if any of the contents of the text within the letter can tell you where possibly to send the letter back to, and if not, to uh, burn the letter. Any objects that are within the mail, like uh, I think is mentioned in here, or, or maybe it's not, maybe it's in the movie, um, a ring <laughs> or uh, money or, uh, you know, tires or whatever is sent through the mail that can't be delivered is then auctioned off. Now imagine your job is to open up letters every day to people who are not getting requited and this traumatizes you so much that you become Bartleby. <laughs> now what you do instead of, uh, uh, and he does his job at the beginning, right? Instead of uh, reading. That's right. Instead of reading and deleting um, letters, you copy letters. And then you realize what, by reading the contents as you're doing so, you're realizing what you're copying are not letters, they're like contra contracts between billionaires about who owns what and who owes what, what debt is owed to whom, right? That might get you down too. <laughs> mm -hmm. So there's a kind of way of reading Bartleby as himself a dead letter, right? He has no place to go. True. And so, so, so he doesn't, he doesn't leave it. He's, he's resistant to moving. Now, that's an interesting thing. Like he doesn't, he's not at home. No, he's not like just not going to work. Like he's at, he just stays at work. That's right. Gives up there and just doesn't move again. There is no dead letter office for humans. Right. And right. so how he is eventually dealt with is he's, he's arrested and taken to the prison. But you can't do that to people. That's not right. <laughs> so our lawyer, he like, oh, shit, he feels bad about it. He goes there and there's the grub man who says, hey, you, your guy's going to starve if you don't give him the right food. I pay me a little and I'll get make sure he gets gets his food. But the problem here is 
he's a person, not a letter. He can't just be filed away, right? He can't be ignored. And that's why I think the focus on Bartleby as a, this, as the main character is actually not as interesting as what is presented, which is the lawyers telling his point of view about everything. He's the focus of, you know, he's, he's the one with the problem, the problem being Bartleby and what to do about the fact that he can't be managed. <laughs> In a certain sense, he's a very yeah. weird employer because he actually cares about his employees a lot. Yeah, you definitely see it that way. Like, um, <clears throat> Bartleby is almost like the antagonist. And I was getting a lot of, um, like, it was reminding me of, like, I know it's not meant to be this way. Like, Bartleby is depressed and he's fighting the system in a way. But mm-hmm. also it reminded me a lot of uh, of stalkers who stalk women who um, just like from my own experience and stuff going on with people I know right now where everything they do is so nice. Like it's like roses and letters and it's just very like you can't say that's a terrible thing that you're doing right now, but wow. just not leaving someone alone and being outside their place like constantly and never leaving. <laughs> it's, <kind of> like, <laughs> it's like this like violent, um, like passive kind of, I don't know, playing with like the social norms in a way that's really creepy, but you can't arrest them or drag them away or. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess at some point, um, interest becomes uh, a stalker. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's interesting. There are no women in this story at all. No, the uh, 19, uh, 2001 film adaptation turns ginger Nut into a woman. Um, Oh yeah. I saw that in the trailer. Yeah, and uh, it's a very strange film. <laughs> um, I wanted to actually mention that because when you were talking before about whether it's a comedy or a tragedy, mm. I think those two films show like the two different takes, mm-hmm. like that and that more recent one, the 2001 trailer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It looks way too like goofy and slapsticky and silly, whereas the um, the older one, which I think was in the 60s, yeah, is all like ominous and kind of. I don't know, a very like downbeat tone and it fits really well. What's interesting. Of course that trailer doesn't tell you, uh, what the film is exactly because they're trying to sell you on the film, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, they try and make it into a, the feel good comedy of the year or whatever in the, in the trailer, <laughs> but actually it's, it's more like an art film. It's very strange. And whoa. Oh, so you watched it, Jesse? Yes, I did. Um, it's actually on YouTube. I follow. I I I followed up. uh, I didn't direct it at you guys, but I followed it up and found it on YouTube. And it it has some scenes that are exactly you know line by line from the story, and some of them are very important scenes. They really so one of the scenes I think that's really interesting and connected to the idea of of earworms is uh, when. He starts talking to Bartleby and he says, Bartleby, I would prefer if you, and then he notices that he's using the word prefer. Mm-hmm. And then Turkey comes in and he says, I think Bartle- Bartleby would prefer to. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, Ginger Nut comes in and he says, I would prefer to. And they started noticing that, like, they're all using it. This. Yeah, they all got infected. Yes. And there's a movie, um, it's a zombie movie. You know the one I mean? It's uh, set in Ontario, uh, named after Ontario City. Um, 
It's a, about a zombie apocalypse, but it's done through sound. I don't know. No? Anyone else? Uh, no. It, it's, the title of the movie is um, The Name of the Town, and it's based on a short story that has the title of the town in it. I'll have to look it up. But uh, basically, the, the uh, infection starts, we're at the radio station, and they start getting reports in that people are acting strangely, and that whatever you do, you shouldn't uh, listen to the people who are having the effect upon them, because it turns you into one of them. <laughs> so basically, if you get these words in your I, head... I got it. It's Pontypool. Pontypool, that's right. Um, and it's based on a story called uh, Everything Starts in Pontypool or something like that. I've never heard of this movie. It's a very good movie. It's very strange. Um, oh, Pontypool Changes Everything is the name of it. No, no that, that's the novel. Yeah, not the yeah it's a short story, I think. Or maybe maybe it's not. Um, it's a Canadian film. Um, a radio host inter interpret interprets the possible outbreak of a deadly virus which infects a small Ontario town he's stationed in. Um, and if you think about you know it's it being set at a radio station, and uh, the idea of you know the walls are closing in, but you're actually the the source of transmission too if it gets into you <laughs> you'll be broadcasting it out it's a pretty interesting idea um and this is this is true you know when you hear certain words uh on the television everybody goes crazy right nuclear war in effect bombs are coming <laughs> what happens everybody freaks out right or uh the twin towers collapsing in 2001 right you, you see that and you say, uh-oh, things are going to change. The Just a bit of uh, visual or auditory information can change the world. And maybe not, you know, destroy the world, but certainly change the world in a strange amount of time. And so when they s start to see themselves infected with the whatever's <laughs> affecting Bartleby, it, th that's what makes it existential, Right. Like we're getting a lot of noise from Will, but no, not a lot of sound. You all right there, Will? Yeah, I, I muted my mic. Okay. Y'all okay? Yeah, well, I'm, we're fine. Okay, good. <laughs> we're all fine. How are you? We didn't Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I just think you nailed it about, uh, you know, the. Uh, so here's the problem with Bartleby, if we want to think about him in this sort of like rise of capitalism way, is if you if you have uh, if you have this guy who just like will like just stand there, he won't do anything, um, you know, and he gets into your thoughts like that's it's pretty bad. And uh, I mean, what what's the thing that causes uh, the uh, lawyer to actually finally try to really get rid of Bartleby is. It's the other uh, the other employers like you know it, it embarrasses him that he has yes. a worker he can't control. Yes. Yeah, it, it feels like it, it it threatens his position, but until then he's he's amazingly passive about it. It kind of kind of uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the story. Oh crap! Um, give give me a second. Um, let's go right to something else. I have to so, think, oh, so I'm trying to think of a story. He's sympathetic until 
that point. Oh, but as a strategy, it's uh, work resistance. Just kind of interesting. That yeah, it's, it's a lot like office you, space. You <laughs> hack the rules, boy. Mm. Like, if you remember, it does hack the rules. That's true. They can't. They can't do anything. He can't do anything too aggressive, really. I mean, he can fire yeah, him, that's... but he's got his own. He even does fire him, right? He just doesn't leave. That's exactly what was reminding me about, like the stalker situations and stuff. It's like they they're hacking the social rules or hacking the rules, you know, to like do stuff that's uncomfortable or. Yeah, that's interesting. Right, right. And, and most and most employers, not the, not our narrator, would have not have tolerated so long. So I remembered the story. This kind of reminds me of this because it's going in a really weird direction. So there's a Harry Turtle Dove alternate history story called the Last Article, which basically it, which basically describes what happens if the Nazis had won World War II and they conquer India. So they're in India and they run into Gandhi, and well. What happens in Gandhi is very, very different than what happens in our history. And the Germans point out, like, yeah, we're not the English. We don't care. We're not going to treat this guy with kid gloves. We're going to take care of him. And they do. It kind of reminds me of this of this narrator who, who kind of very passively doesn't do anything about Bartley until his own position is threatened. And until then, he's very – but I think most employers would have long since kicked Bartleby out of that office. But he, he tolerates him for an extremely – patient amount of time he, now he actually never acts if you think about what you're saying he tolerates him for a long, he never he he never does act right he, he, moves, he moves the entire office out to, to but that's to escape but yeah. he doesn't like physically remove him he doesn't call the cops right no but, but he, he basically would rather move himself than move Bartleby but uh, but notice when when uh, so I'm going to read this section. This is f- from the very first mention of the word prefer, uh, in the, which is quite a ways into the story. In this very attitude did I sit when I called to him. Uh, now he actually describes. His, I'm going to read that part as well. It's very interesting. He describes the way his hands are, which is very weird. So. Now and then, in the haste of business, it had been my habit to assist in the comparing some brief document calling turkey or nippers for this purpose. One object I had in placing Bartleby so handy to me behind the screen, and I think the screen plays a big role in the story, was to avail myself of his services on such trivial occasions. It was on the third day, and notice he he thinks that Bartleby is going to be more useful to him than either turkey or nippers. And the reason is turkey is is bad in the afternoons and nippers is bad in the morning. If he had either of them close at hand, he couldn't rely on either of them throughout the day. One object I had in placing Bartleby so handy to me behind the screen was to avail myself of his services on such trivial occasions. It was on the third day, I think of his being with me. And before any necessity had arisen for having his own writing examined, that being much hurried to complete a small affair I had in hand, I abrupt notice the hand again, I abruptly called to Bartleby. In my haste and natural expectancy of instant compliance, I sat with my head bent over the original on my desk and my right hand sideways and somewhat nervously extended with the copy. So that, Im- uh, I see nervous, so that immediately upon emerging from his retreat, Bartleby might snatch it and proceed to business without the least delay. So he wants him to grab the paper and read it to him so he can check Bartleby's work, right? And then we get this description. 
In this very attitude did I sit when I called to him, rapidly stating what it was I wanted him to do, namely, to examine a small paper with me. Imagine my surprise, nay, my consternation, when am, without moving from his privacy, Bartleby, in a singularly mild, firm voice, replied, I would prefer not to. I sat a while in perfect silence, rallying my stunned faculties. Immediately occurred to me that my ears had deceived me, or Bartleby had entirely misunderstood my meaning. I repeated my request in the clearest tone I could assume. But in quite as clear a tone came the previous reply. I would prefer not to. Prefer not to? echoed I, rising in high excitement and crossing the room with a stride. What do you mean? Are you moonstruck? I, w I want you to help me compare this sheet. Here, take it. And I thrust it towards him. I would prefer not to, said he. Notice the backwards grammar of I would prefer not to. It's not, doesn't, this is something that Zizek gets into a lot. Um, the backwards, oh, and, uh, another French philosopher. Uh, ah, French philosopher. Um, the backwards, when you end it with a preposition, you're not supposed to do that. I would prefer not to, said he. Instead of, he said, I looked at him steadfastly. His face was leanly composed, his gray eye dimly calm. Not a wrinkle of agitation rippled him. Had there been the least uneasiness, anger, impatience, or impertinence in his manner, in other words, had there been anything ordinarily human about him, doubtless I should have violently dismissed him from the premises. But as it was, I should have, as soon as thought of turning my pale plaster of Paris bust of Cicero, it's not the last time we see Cicero. Out of doors, I stood gazing at him a while as he went on with his own writing and then reseated myself at my desk. This is a very strange, this is very strange, thought I. What had one best do? But my business hurried me. I concluded to forget the matter for the present, reserving it for a future leisure. So calling nippers from the other room, the paper was speedily examined. So, he says that he would have fired him. It had not, had his face been any different, right? But I think that is yet to be determined because every time he's confronts him, he, he's, he invites Turkey and Nippers to, you know, say, what do you think? What do you think about what this guy's doing? And they're like, oh, let's punch him out. <laughs> and the other guy's like, he's, he's crazy. <laughs> I, they are, willing to make action and he begs them to not do so he even has ginger nut come in at one point right he is the one who's sort of allowing this to happen and it's because he's a very strange employer it's it turns to the very end right where he says um ah bartleby and then ah humanity oh the humanity well, he's saying Bartleby is in this position, ah, such a horrible position. And then he extends it beyond that to humanity. Yeah, he's sympathizing with the, the this depression is, in the situation. This is our situation, is what he's yeah, saying. Right. Which is very strange, because I don't think of that as myself. But if you put me into the office... Like I was mentioning the movie Office Space, which is a 1999 movie. You guys know this comedy, yeah, right? Yeah, everyone's seen Office Space, yeah. Uh, but the protagonist of it, the main character, 
he wants to be fired, right? He hates his, his work. Everybody at the work hates their work. And so what's he do? He refuses to do something. And they say, oh, this guy's got spunk. He should be promoted. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And and the boss in that, he's the one who has the long, drawn-out, okay. Yeah, that would be great. He says, I'm going to need you to go ahead and... (laughs) File those TPS reports, whatever it is, right? Yeah, Go ahead and, right? He's pushing the verb away farther and farther and farther so that it makes whatever command he's giving very soft. And when you stand up to him and say, I want to do that, he says, I'm going to need you to do. go ahead and do it, right? And then when you don't do it, he doesn't fire you. <laughs> Upper management hears that you're an up-and-comer. What about, what about the other... Uh... What about the other authority figures in the story, though? They're also kind of, they're looking at this guy as the guy who's going to be their fixer, right? Yep, it's like, yep. they've, they've met this man who, like, cannot manage his employees, and they're like, okay, this is the guy who's going to deal with Bartleby for us. Yep. Um, it reminds me of this episode of King of the Hill, where, uh, I don't know if you all follow that show. Um, it's by the same guy who did Office Space. Oh, okay, okay, so, you know, there's this character, Dale Gribble, who is, you know, this conspiracy theorist, um, who just really is, like, a joke, uh, compared to his friends, but he, there's an episode where he gets a high-powered corporate job because he really likes firing people, (laughs) and so they, what they need is a Dale Gribble in this situation, who's just, like, willing to come in and just, like, deal with it, uh, but, you know, um, you know, we have this scene where, like, the new, like, the new, uh, tenant is like come on man you have to go deal with this guy he's your responsibility yeah. and then the landlord is like come on man um and you know maybe maybe evan understands uh american history at this point like why all these like property owners are so afraid to resort to the police um i just don't think the this the institutions are there it's it's like now if you have a troublesome employee you just call in the you know the police to they swap that. them. They swap them. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think cool that stuff's guess. really well developed at this point. And I, 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 I mean, you just have the origins of things like prisons and police. It's like he doesn't even go to prison at the end. He goes to like the jail where they just dump the vagrants. Yeah, the tombs. Which, yeah, which, it's which, a real which place. Reminds me of. Uh, I mean, this was right like the 1850s. That's right when these institutions are being developed, and only in some parts of the of the country. I should tell you guys about the time I called the police to to investigate something, and they hung up on me. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. So I, uh, there was a break-in in my building in, in the underground uh, storage lockers, and I'm like, oh, shit, my comics are stolen, and probably a few other things, right? And the lock was broken, and I wasn't the only one who had this happen to me. And some busybody lady in my building uh, told me that she knew who did it. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I was very interested in it. And um, and I, so I, I called the police to say, you know, hey, um, uh, there's evidence that this person did it. This person says they are, you know, witness somehow to it. Um, you need to investigate. And they're like, yeah, that doesn't sound like our business. And I'm like... No, I'm pretty sure this is your business, and <laughs> right. So I had this like argument on the phone with, with I, you know, the non-emergency number, um, and they hung up on me, and I'm like, this is unacceptable. So 
I called back and she hung up again. So I, I wrote a, a stern email <laughs> to, to the police. Um, and, uh, and then, um, addressed it to the, you know, chief constable or whoever it was. And they called me back and said, uh, we listened to the recording and, uh, you were right. Um, and we're sending an investigator. It turns out the busybody. Yeah. The busybody. Um, she did it. No, no. She, she's just, Ah. you know, making trouble. And there's, (laughs) there was no evidence for, for her wild claims, but you know, the thing is, is she said who who had done it, right? But it's not my job to go there and confront them, right? And I made this argument to the person on the phone who hung up on me. <laughs> I said, it's yeah. not my job as a citizen to go investigate the crimes. And they said, well... But if you do, that's a really fast you, way to get the police there. Because of course, of course. Before. I'm going there right now to confront this person. They're like, no, no. But no, no, no. they said it's not our... <laughs> she said it's not our problem, Um and and I'm saying, well, who should I turn to? And she says, I don't know. And I said, well, there's, and I mentioned the name of a uh, local crime gang. I said, I could ask them to do it. Would that make sense? <laughs> would, yeah, and she said, that would be a bad idea. And I'm like, you're correct. I believe this is your responsibility, <laughs> right? Oh, now, the sure. thing is, is this is, uh, this happens all the time with police, right? If you, uh, the, in Canada, I think it's a lot better because, you know, we don't tend to swat people as much. Um, it happens, but, you know, they're on contract. The cops in this town are on contract. And if they lose that contract, that, that's bad for the department or whatever, right? We'll get our own city police or whatever. In any case, um, the fact that I made a, a strong argument and an email <laughs> and saying that this was unacceptable, I think is what you know, lit a fire under somebody's ass because, you know, that's not the normal response is just to give up. Now, the thing is, is we, anytime you've got some sort of system, right? Uh, some sort of, uh, way of dealing with problems, like if you invent the post office, then you have to deal with the fact that some items are undeliverable. Staff are not allowed to keep items of mail that are undeliverable. Hence, they have to go somewhere. Once they go somewhere, they start piling up. You have to deal with them. You have to set up policies. So our guy is, is in one of these strange situations. He's like, he's like an Indian with no band. He's an Indian with no tribe. He's, uh, a mental, he's mentally ill, but not mentally ill in a way that's, um, <laughs> causing um a disturbance that can be dealt with in another way he isn't robbing banks and stabbing people on the bus right he's just preferring not to and so the just not going home not uh, and (laughs) he has no home right that's the that's why he doesn't go home yeah he he shows up on the doorstep he's not just like going Mm -hmm. he shows up in this doorstep is brought in right and then he does, he seems to, you know, be fine. It's like, it's like when I get a piece of mail, um, a bunch of mail, I take it into my apartment and I start sorting through it. And this is, you know, this is junk mail and this is a bill and, oh, this one isn't for me. So I can go and put it back in the right place. But if it's, if it's not for anybody in the building or if it's for a person who doesn't live here anymore, I can write on it and then put it back in the mailbox. But you can't do that with people. Mm-hmm. And if you if you did, you'd be a monster, 
So what makes our unnamed lawyer protagonist so strange is that he he feels terrible for Bartleby. More so than Bartleby does. Bartleby isn't depressed in a certain sense. He's just unable to be delivered. And yeah, he dies and it seems to be a tragedy, right? But it's it's humanity that's in this situation. We put ourselves in into capitalism, right? And, you know, we need a, a ginger nut to make us feel spicy at work. And Yeah, yeah but, but Bartleby doesn't feel spicy even though he no. needs ginger nuts. He, yeah, he doesn't. I, 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 I found that really weird. They're like, ginger is a hot spice. Like, what? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Fresh, <laughs> yeah, it Fresh is. ginger is pretty spicy. It's spicy, for Maybe, sure. But I'm, I'm, I'm Not like chili spicy, but yeah. No, it's, it's different. Jesus. And then it, that's how it ends, um, right? It says, he whom it would relieve, um, that is the swift, uh, he talks about charity. Um, where is it? Where is it? Conceive a man by nature and misfortune prone to pallid hopelessness. Can any business seem more fitted to the height, to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for, assorting them for the flames? For the cartload, for by the cartload they are annually burned. Sometimes, from out of the folded paper, the pale clerk takes a ring. The finger it was meant for, perhaps, molders in the grave. A banknote sent in swiftest charity. He, he whom it would relieve, nor eats, nor hungers any more. Pardon for those who died despairing. Hope for those who died unhoping. Good tidings for those who died stifled by unrelieved calamities. On errands of life, these letters speed to death. He's not talking about letters. Right? He's talking about people. You know, you sent you sent off into oh. the world and you think you're going to go west, young man, and make a fortune. And what do you find? Hopelessness. <laughs> Misfortune. And don't know where to go. It, um, one of uh, Melville's kids killed himself uh, with a oh gun at home. It's almost like this is, and you know, he, uh, he actually mentions, um, the other businesses that are on Wall Street, right? Uh, one of them is the, uh, Customs House. That's where Melville worked. Hmm. Did his child, um, kill himself before he wrote this story? I don't know. Sorry? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the thing after. is, working in uh, the Customs okay. House was later too, I think. I it must have been around the same time because he knows about it. I mean, the, the thing is, is w- what we know of Melville's other, uh, you know, his going to sea and think about how Ishmael gets on the boat in Moby Dick, right? He, he needs to get to sea because the land is not for him right now. So he gets on a boat and he has various adventures. And then what's the, what's Taipei, right? He, he's on a boat and doesn't like it. He prefers not to, and he uh, he defects. It's in yeah. the army. It's called malingering, right? When you or mutiny or whatever. But here he's deserting. Because Malcolm Melville died in 1867. Yeah, so after the story was written. Yeah, that's the same year he became custom inspector. Yeah, you can see it coming though. <laughs> it's 
It's well, the, terrible. The, the 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 desertion thing. I mean, I, there that is such a huge theme in his maritime fiction. Mm-hmm. Like I even did a YouTube video about this. Um, and we discussed it when we talked about Taipei. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we're like Taipei. He's basically bailing on the job. Omu is a much more complex look at that, where they actually mutiny and they're put in like a jail and they're able to break free of that. But then they wander around. At least the narrator wanders around the Society Islands, looking for different jobs. They'll stay, but they're always quitting. And then uh, Marty is literally this search for this ideal society through these different mythical islands in the Pacific. And every place they go is not quite right. And the novel ends with the character like failing to find paradise and moving on to the next place. Uh, oh, that's fascinating. So all of his stories are basically like screw all of Well, then you got the, the other three mar- <laughs> Well, there's four other maritime stories, right? There's White Jacket, which is about the Navy. That's a harder theme to pull off when you're talking about the Navy. Redburn has a bit of it. That's about uh, someone's first transatlantic voyage as a young boy, or a young man, I should say. Uh, mm-hmm. And Moby Dick. Even Moby Dick, though, like Ishmael starts he, out saying, you know, he, he gets bored at his normal life and wants to go to sea. So. And then he disappears mm-hmm. from the novel. way of, of moving on. He disappears from the out. novel, uh, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, fairly recent, I don't know, a couple chapters in, he's he's gone, and it's all about these, you know, the master, and then he reappears at the end, right, as uh, adrift from the ship, in, in uh, yeah, just there, a coffin, it's really, right? to tell the story. Yeah. Um. So uh, when he does, when he goes and tried to get him out, right, this is that scene is amazing. Um, I'll read read it here. What are you doing here, Bartleby, said I, sitting upon the banister, he said, he mildly replied. I motioned him. uh, That's the other thing is when I was expecting this story, I thought he would only say the same thing over and over over again. Um, I would prefer not to. But he actually does say other things, too. Um, But most of the time when it's not a yes, you know, like, please do this, it's a he doesn't answer, just doesn't say anything. But here he says a few other things. Um, I motioned him into the lawyer's room, who then left us. Bartleby, said I, are you aware that you are the cause of great tribulation to me by persisting in occupying the entry after being dismissed from the office? It's almost like he's his son, right? No answer. Now, one of two things must take place. Either you must do something, or something must be done to you. Now, what sort of business would you like to engage in? This is kind of a strange list of things he gives him. Would you like to re-engage in copying for someone? No, I would prefer not to make any change. That's interesting. Right? He doesn't say, no, I wouldn't. I would prefer not to make any change. So what is he doing right now? Uh, Sitting on a banister. (laughs) Would you like a clerkship in a dry goods store? There is too much confinement about that. No, I would not like a clerkship, but I'm not particular. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Too much confinement, I cried. Why you keep yourself confined all the time? I would prefer not to take a clerkship, he rejoined, as if to settle the item at once. How would a bartender's business suit you? 
there is no tr- trying of the eyesight in that. It's so. Uh, this makes me think back to when we're getting the description of turkey and uh, nippers. I think it's nippers who's always uh, adjusting his work table, right? And he puts it up high, and then his shoulder shirt, and he puts it down low, and then he's bent over and hurts his back. Um, in the 2001 film, uh, Joe Piscopo plays that character, and he has a hyper-adjustable chair, you know, one of those office chairs that has 60 different ways of being adjusted. <laughs> yeah, like those Her- Herman Miller-Aeron chairs. Yes, uh, and notice, Paul, that so much focus of our lives is focused on that chair, right? Never did he think <laughs> that he could have a standing desk, like Rumsfeld. <laughs> Anyways, we keep going. I would not like it at all, though, I, as I said before, I am not particular. His unwanted wordiness inspired, inspirited me. I returned to the charge. Well, then, would you like to travel through the country collecting bills for the merchants? That would improve your health. No, I would prefer to do something else. How, then, would you would going as a companion to Europe to entertain some young gentleman with your conversation, how would that suit you? Now, that sounds like a job I would like, but then I realize what kind of person it would be <laughs> that I'd be spending time trying to entertain. Not so fun. Not at all. It does not strike me that there is anything definite about that. I like to be stationary. Get it? Stationary. <laughs> but I am not particular. Stationary you shall be then, I cried, now losing all patience, and for the first time in all my exasperating connection with him fairly flying into a passion, if you do not go away from these premises before night, I shall feel bound, indeed I am bound, to, to, to quit the premises myself, I rather absurdly concluded, (laughs) knowing not with what possible threat to frighten his immobility into compliance." Despairing of all further efforts, I precipitately, I was precipitately leaving him when a final thought occurred to me, one which had not wholly, had not wholly been unindulged before. Bartleby, said I, in the kindest tone, I could assume such, uh, I could assume under such exciting circumstances, uh, will you go home with me now? Not to my office, but my dwelling, and remain there till we can conclude upon some convenient arrangement for for you at our leisure. Come, let us start now, right away. No, at present I would prefer not to make any change at all. He's like a force of nature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's like, uh, that's why I was thinking he's like Mr. Data, right? <laughs> he's just, he's he's committed to his assignment and he can't go away but that's not that's not the right metaphor that's not the way right way of looking at it. he's he's like a he's like a letter that's a human mm. and he can't he can't say where he needs to go because where he needs to go with right it's not on the list of of places it's interesting as well that i i was looking up something about the story and um that he wrote this this is his very first attempt at a short story for the market because mm-hmm. he was he was trying to write more philosophical novels after Taipei and they kept on bombing and people mm-hmm. kept on hating them. And so then he gave up and decided to write, you know, like, well, I'm not getting paid anything. I'm just going to write for this magazine mm-hmm. and write something a bit more commercial. But 
I feel like I can kind of feel that in there as well, like with the, <laughs> with the I'd prefer not to. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, that was kind of like the driving thesis that my English professor had back back in oh, college. Really? So, yeah, that 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 basically this is Melville working out like he wasn't liking what he was writing, so he was basically putting himself into the spin of Bartleby. Like I prefer not to write this stuff, but <laughs> right. here here we ha- here we are. I thought that was a rather dark take but i didn't argue with the professor at the time because you know i was young and callow but so i think it's right the thing is is he is confronted by reality and the reality is we don't need you bud we don't like you bud and and he says like but uh, but i know i'm talented i know i have the goods Come on, you guys got to love this stuff. I'll keep, I'll, I'll try it again. And then like, I'm going to nope. sit on this banister. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if you do that long enough, what happens is you starve to death, right? So he, yeah, he stops doing that. But then, of course, what happens? Some time goes by. People sort of catch up with what he's saying, catch up to what he's saying and what he's doing and say, mm-hmm. this guy's a genius, right? Super genius. And that's why, you know, his story is being taught in schools all the time because people can't, it's like a puzzle. People can't, uh, can't, they can appreciate it as a piece of art, but they don't even know what they're appreciating. It's so mysterious. Mm-hmm. It, it's very much like a weird tale. It just doesn't have the, uh, the effect, uh, or the, it's like The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, except it doesn't have, like, oh, we're trying to spook you. It's more like, it's disturbing, but it's not disturbing in a way that uh, is, like, you tremble and think, you know, I'm going to shoot myself before. Right? It's more like, oh, no. Something- it reminds me a lot of this um, story by Karen Tidbeck called... I have placed my sickness upon you, which is also about a depressed mm. person mm. Um, who gets given a goat, huh. uh, as a scapegoat for her depression. And wow. That, yeah, it's it's got the same tone and the same kind of like so funny but so depressing. Wow. Um, there's a, a Jules Verne short story that's very interesting uh, called Fr- – I think it's called Frit Frack. <laughs> which is a very strange title. It's it's set in a alternate earth reality uh where basically France is full of volcanoes and uh, it's on the coast and there's Volcanic a Volcanic France. Yeah. Volcanic France. It's okay. not really it's it's French but it's just like another universe basically and the, there's a doctor who's called in the night to go to administer to somebody's family member but he won't go unless his fee is paid and uh eventually they come i think three family members come um and they have gathered enough money in the middle of the night for him to go um and he takes his dog with him it's in the middle of the night and the dog carries the lantern in its mouth and and then as he's walking down the trail we see the flames of the volcano volcanic explosion in the background um, and the dog, uh, starts standing on its hind legs as it's walking. <laughs> and then wow. the person that, and the, it, who's leading them to the house, um, disappears in the fog. 
but they keep going and then they come along the coast to the town where the house is and they go in to the house and it's exactly like the house that they just left except it's sort of inverted somehow and they go in and the patient is him and it's like what the fuck is this <laughs> It sounds great. What's it's amazing. It's Fritfrack, I believe. <laughs> Fritfrack. Um, I've got it on the PDF page, I think. I, I think that's what it's called. Jules Verne. Um, I did a show on it with Eric. Uh, yeah, Fritfrack. Oh, uh, sorry, Fritflack. Uh, F-R-R-I-T-T dash F-L-A-C-C also known as the ordeal of Dr. Trifflegas or Dr. Trifflegas, uh, first published in the Strand in English in, in 1892. And it's very different from what you think of Jules Verne as, but it's very much, there's a document involved and it, it means something, right? In the same way that Bartleby the Scrivener means something, you know, uh, or, uh, the lost room by, uh, Fitzjames O'Brien mean it has meaning. When you leave the room and you come back and the room is now occupied by other people who, who don't acknowledge you as a person. Uh, that's strange. It's almost like it's a, it's about our mental condition and it's very, especially with this story, you get that sense of its meta-ness, right? That he knows mm -hmm. he's writing for a magazine and that, that the story seems set, it's called right by the title Bartleby the Scrivener, a story of Wall Street. Why? What does Wall Street have to do with it? Well, it's just, it's just the setting, really. But really, Wall that's but that's not the uh, yeah, that's not it at all, right? It's not even the story of Bartleby. It's the story of this man confronting a force of nature, and him. He brought on he brought on Bartleby. He advertised for him. Uh, because he wanted to balance out his other employees. <laughs> and what he got instead was something that made him unbalanced. Right? Really fascinating. Fascinating story. Yeah, it's really good. I'm so glad I didn't read this when I was young. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that's wrong. You shouldn't read it when you're young. It's too... Uh, would have ruined it for me. You just spend all your time thinking, uh, I prefer not to, and say that to yeah. the teacher. <laughs> I mean, how many times has that happened? You get assigned a written essay uh, to write about Bartleby the Scrivener's themes, and you say, I prefer not to, and you're done. Yeah. That must happen all the time. I assume it happens daily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you should look at the um, illustrations for Frit Flack. Because I am wonderful. looking at one right now on Wikipedia. It looks very cool. Mm. Yeah, it's it's almost like he's his own doctor and he's having a heart attack or something. Um, and he's dying. It's very impossible to understand, really. <laughs> wonderful. Sounds like my kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's short, too. It's only five pages. Well... Have we exhausted Bartleby? I think well, we've written it all out. There's the religious well, well, stuff, I guess. Oh, tell me about religious. the religious yeah, stuff gonna, you mentioned. There's the religious stuff, and then we've done sort of the, like... Like, we've really honed in on how the lawyer is, like, a messed up guy, but... And, like, we, we've talked about, like, Bartleby's issues, but what about the what about the moments where we, like... 
I feel like you get Bartleby's perspective on what's going on in a couple places that are like, um, he's like, I don't know. Bartleby is this uncanny guy mm-hmm. and they don't really understand him on some level. Uh, so there's this scene where, um, you know, they think that he's stopped working because his eyesight is bad, but it comes right after that scene where they're all talking about, you know, how this earworm of, mm. uh, I prefer not to is just, you know, really messing them up. And, you know, they're, they're making fun of him essentially. And Bartleby just stops working after that. Right. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think the lawyer isn't making fun of it's possible that the others are making fun for the sure. They're making fun of him. Yes. Um, but they're also making fun of the lawyer too. I think if more, more than anything that happens in the 2001 film, they show that they're bullying him. Um, that, that the uh, one who wants to punch him and the other one who just doesn't understand the drunk, Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the drunk is, um, the drunk is funny. Um, they, they, the, their solidarity is with their boss in a certain sense, but it's also a false solidarity, right? They, yeah, they don't like their work like anymore. A, yeah. No. And I, I think that we can get into the, the boss's kind of neuroses when we let Evan talk about the religious stuff. Um, and then there's this, uh, the scene where he's, uh, where, where he's in the tombs, uh, and, uh, the the boss comes and says hey bartleby you know you know you know me and and bartleby's like i know who you are yeah uh and you know it's and he's like bartleby this place isn't that bad and bartleby's like i know what this place is yeah um so there's like bartleby kind of gets it in a way but he's just so strange that it's um it's hard to kind of fathom what Bartleby's perspective is in this story. And it's cause he's the antagonist, but I think it's like worth just thinking about that for a second. Just, uh, you know, Bartleby knows what his place in society is in a way. It's, it's not a good place. Uh, well, I mean, I keep thinking about the military angle, right? He, it's like, he's been drafted right into the army and they tell him where to go. And he, he's being called a malingerer, right? But, he didn't choose to go. He was just sent, right? He shows up. He does his best peeling potatoes or whatever it is. And then they say, um, we'd like you to go shoot that man. And he says, I'd prefer not to. <laughs> and they say, what do you mean prefer not to? You're in the army, buddy. And, you know, maybe they're in the heat of battle. They leave him behind when they all charge off to get shot. It's like he, he realizes... There's such he's he is seen the Lovecraftian document, you know. <laughs> he realize he's he's seen the the horror that's behind the veil, and everybody else is like, well, "This guy's really strange." <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he's traumatized, horror, for sure. Right? It's well, like and go for it. The, yeah, the other thing with Bartleby is so we they talk about him as being like a cadaver, like an awful lot, and mm-hmm. yeah. There's this, uh, there's this weird, I think you'll like this, Jesse. There's this weird trick where, um, so the young character in the story is named Ginger Nut, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and what, what does Bartleby subside on? Like, I mean, cheese only and ginger nut crumbs. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got this like cadaver like figure that only eats, um, this food that shares the same name as the like child character. Mm hmm. 
think that's pretty interesting too. It's um, funny as he Ginger Nut is called Ginger Nut not because he eats Ginger Nuts, but rather because he's called to go get them, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like Coffee Boy, and then they call him Coffee Boy, right? Why is Turkey called Turkey? I was thinking that too. Like, is it the food? Because the fact that he like commits suicide basically by starvation as well, and it's like all the characters at the start are seem to be named after food. They're feeding him. Uh, well, nippers is is the eating point, of food. The narrator says that he gobbles. There you go. Turns red when he the- Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, okay. He so he's like turkey the bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So what about this religious aspect? Because um, he, 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 he well, talked about at one point the narrator, uh, you know, tries to move like tries to use this religious moral suasion idea to try to well first it's like i gotta be better myself right i gotta improve my own management techniques and i gotta see him as a christian i have to be i have to act like a christian towards him be generous and all that charity that's that's part of like the rules that he's governed by like this paternalism right that's Mm -hmm. what i was thinking of before with why this if you want us to think of this as a resistance strategy you know, it's why it's so effective in this case. It's because there's this kind of paternalism there, and it's um, so that's part of it. But also, just this whole kind of reform era. This is that era of of reform in the nineteen eighteen thirties, eighteen forties, where Americans were obsessed with this religious revival going on. It's it's even called the Second Great Awakening by historians. And all of that was directed towards reforming American sins and perfecting American society through moral suasion. So this was everything from slavery to the the way sailors were treated, right? This was like the anti-flogging campaign took place during this period of time. Uh, reforming prostitution, reforming, but even vagrancy. That was another kind of social problem that these religiously motivated reformers tried to approach. And tried to deal with, and and our narrator is certainly affected by that. He seems part of that culture. Let me let me read this section because this is very religious. Now that you pointed out, yeah. um, uh, so are you ready to go on and write now? Are your eyes recovered? Could you copy a small paper for me this morning, or help examine a few lines, or step? A- around to the post office in a word will you do anything at all to give a coloring to your refusal to depart the premises he silently retired to his hermitage which is behind a blind right and when he moves he takes that blind away the uh, thing that allows him to to be in the same room with bartleby but not have to see bartleby uh and then it continues i i was now in such a state of nervous resentment that i thought it but prudent to check myself at present from further demonstrations. Bartleby and I were alone. I remembered the tragedy of the unfortunate Adams and the still more unfortunate Colt in the solitary office of the latter, and how poor Colt had been being dreadfully incensed by Adams and imprudently permitting himself to get wildly excited was to uh, was at unawares hurried into his fatal act. An act which certainly no man could possibly deplore more than the actor himself. Often it had occurred to me in my ponderings upon the subject that had that altercation taken place in the public street or in a private residence, it would not have terminated as it did. 
It was a circumstance of being alone in a solitary office upstairs of a building entirely unhallowed by humanizing domestic associations, an uncarpeted office doubtless of dusty haggard of appearance, that it must that it must have been which greatly helped to enhance the irritable desperation of the hapless cult. So he's talking about a murder. A kills C, right? Adams kills Colt. And who do we get next is Bartleby B. But when this old Adam of resentment rose up in me, and he's using this guy, Adam, as an example. Uh, Adam of resentment rose up in me and tempted me concerning Bartleby. <laughs> I grappled him and threw him. So he's talking about murdering Bartleby, right? How? Why, simply by recalling the divine interjunction, quote, a new commandment given give I unto you that ye love one another. Yes, this it was that saved me. Aside from high considerations, charity often operates as a vastly wise and prudent principle, a great safeguard to its possessor. Men have committed murder for jealousy's sake, anger's sake, hatred's sake, selfishness's sake, and spiritual pride's sake. But no man that ever I heard of ever committed a diabolical murder for sweet charity's sake. Mere self-interest, then, if no better motive can be enlisted, should, should, especially when high-tempered men prompt all beings to charity and philanthropy. At any rate, upon the occasion in question, I strove to drown my ex exasperated feelings towards the Scrivener by benevolently, benevolently constructing his conduct. Uh, sorry, benevolently construing his conduct. Poor fellow, poor fellow, I thought. He did not mean anything. And besides, he has seen hard times and ought to be indulged. So, again, this is all about the, the lawyer, right? He's confronted by this situation, this terrible employee. He, he's, I'm, I'm gonna kill this guy, right? But he doesn't say, I'm gonna kill this guy. He gives the example of some partner who killed one other partner in heat of passion, which would have been a third degree murder, right? And he says, no, 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 not that. Charity. Charity is the answer. Charity will not allow me to, if I focus on charity, I won't kill him. And it is, I mean, the lawyer is too benevolent. He thinks every, he's, he's, he almost worships John J Jacob Astor, right? And he's a servant to him in a certain sense. And he takes pride in that. Have you guys ever seen that show called Upstairs, Downstairs, the original from the 70s? I think it's the 70s. Not me. No? Okay. Basically, it's, it's like, um, it's like that, uh, high, one filmed in High Clare Castle, uh, from a few years ago. Uh, it, it's got servants and rich people, uh, in a, I don't know, period setting like 1900 or something. You know the show I'm talking about is a BBC show, or maybe UK show. Basically, it's servants and rich people living in the same house. Upstairs, downstairs is the same thing as just lower budget and set in London. And the upstairs oh, people oh, have their problems, and the downstairs oh, people have their problems. You, you're talking about Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, yeah. I, I, I didn't realize for the last... 10 minutes, I accidentally had clicked the mute button in Skype. I've been saying a lot of things and nobody's responded Aww. to a word. Poor Paul. Like, what the hell? <laughs> yes, that, yeah, 
Yeah, I've, I've seen episodes downstairs, and you're right. It's like Downton Abbey's the like the modern version, except on a, a country estate. Yeah, and and there's some issues with it. But one of the one of the things with upstairs downstairs that's fascinating is that they take in a new uh, servant, I think, in the first episode or something, a, a scullery maid, and she has all these ambitions. She has all this background that she says she's she's a singer and she's an actress and she's and the servants tell her she's nothing, that she's a scullery maid, and that she needs to set aside all these wild claims that she's making and know her place. And that, like, is a real takedown, right? Um, And the upstairs people are, they're very charitable towards these downstairs people, but they need to know their place. And the butler's job is to tell them their place and make sure that they do their job. But then they, he also says, but there's dignity in working for good people like these people above us, right? That they, they know better than we do. And that our job is to help them and make their lives better. And in doing that, in doing our jobs well, we become elevated, not to their position, but in our own dignity and our own place. And it's fucking evil, Right. You know it's fucking evil while you're hearing it, but you see how compelling it is. Because, yeah, she's she is lying to herself about what... She, she's faking it until she makes it, she thinks. But she's going to get ground up by, you know, the music hall industry or whatever <laughs> the idea, right? And that, so it's better for her to have a, a safe position and not come away with a baby too early and all that stuff that will happen to her. And we know that's going to happen because that's what the upstairs people are doing. They're off wenching and, you know, making babies with people. And we can see, because we're seeing the, the household from po- both points of view, we, we can see that they're not the dignified people that the head chef, or not the head chef, the head uh, butler is making, making them out to be. It's his, he's deluding himself. It's, I guess it's a lot like um, Uncle Tom's Cabin in a certain sense. We are meant to be outraged by it. And, and yet the way this story is told, we never see it f- from higher than the lawyer's point of view. Right? It's, but they're all, they're subject to a system. But I'm not sure Melville is saying it's capitalism as much as he's saying, I feel unplaced un, uh, in the world. I don't feel I'm in the right spot. I'll, I'll go to sea, and oh, that didn't work. Okay, I feel unmoored. Yeah, uh, yeah, but that's what Bartleby is. He is moored, right? right. Yeah, right. But but Melville felt unmoored, so he winds up going to sea. He tries all these different things, and, and then he writes about it, and that comes off as a success. And then he writes uh, about more stuff, and they say, "Nope, you're garbage." And he's, "What? Well, no, I'm great." No, no, you're not. So, um, his the verdict of history and literature uh, say that he was great. So you know, yeah, but not at the time, right? Not at the time. No, <laughs> the, the long all the people history. around him are. And uh, if you read about Edgar Allan Poe's life, it's it's basically the same. He's he's saying, no, 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 guys, I'm great. <laughs> says, really, I'm really great. Um, and they're like, well, you know, we like some of what you're saying, but. Uh, we think you're you. We think you're not as great as you think you are. Well, this goes back to the whole thing. Can you write that we did a couple weeks ago? Where can writers make a living writing these days? And a lot of them can't because you know. Well, but can everybody be great? Is the question, right? And, and the thing is, is 
we know Melville's great because he wrote this story, but do we all have a uh, Bartleby the Scrivener uh, waiting to come out and be published and recognized in a hundred years? I don't think so. Even if we have, mm-hmm. it, I guess, if we have infinite time, then yes. But we don't have infinite time. Not everybody can be, you know, taught in school and made made to punish children, <laughs> counting up themes and stuff like that. Any more? We we all done? I got one little one. That sure. Just, I'm not sure if this is Melville's perspective, but I thought I'd mention it. Um, so his job, or the, this firm, I quote, do a stunk business among rich men's bonds and mortgages and title deeds. He doesn't, it makes, and then he talks about John Jacob Astor mm-hmm. as the example, but this might be a bit of a deflection. Uh, you think maybe real estate here. But bonds, mortgages, title deeds, this could apply also to uh, another form of property ownership that was quite common. Oh, sure. Yeah. Slavery, which, of course, a lot of northern firms, although those are free states, were involved in insurance policies and and those kinds of stuff for slavery. And, you know, maybe that's in the backdrop of this. We're not it's never quite clear what this person's business is. Mm hmm. But he he says he's a safe, <laughs> right? But the reason you copy all this yeah, stuff he's out, he's not he's not an abolitionist. He's not causing ruckus. That's he's right. Not, he he copies yeah. all this stuff out so that everybody can have a copy, so that when the the suing comes, which it will, right? When the suing comes, you have the letter, you have a copy of it, and you can say, "Look, this is what it says." And that's what the, um, it, they're not copying out literature. Right? They're not copying out love poetry. They're copying out contracts. It's all about like the, their literal job is photocopier. Yeah. And and so uh, uh, to me, the reason I was thinking like the reason he likes copying at first is because he's it's almost like he's enjoying gaining information. Right. It's like, oh, that's very interesting. Copying it back and forth. But then he says, now I would like you to read back what you've already written. Well, that's not fun. <laughs> because, you know, as a copyist, you're, you're basically reading. But as a rereader, that's not the same. And, and checking your work, like, oh, that's, that's, but it's not even your work, right? It's just, it's, it, it, uh, there's another movie, um, called, uh, was it one hour photo? Is that what it's called? The one of the last yeah, Robin, Robin Williams, Williams films, yeah. which oh, yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah. And it's about work, right? He's also a serial killer. I believe it's been a while since I've seen it, but basically he takes an interest in his work in a way that people shouldn't. <laughs> and basically a stalker. He's a kind of stalker. Yeah. Um, but, it's it's such a funny movie because it comes out so late in the life cycle of the film camera that that those businesses were basically gone by the time the film came out. Um, but it has that same kind of like you're taking your work too seriously aspect to it and you're too solitary in your work. This guy won't even leave the office, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, when what was what were you thinking? There's a question. What were you thinking when he comes, when the lawyer comes to the door and tries the door, tries the handle and finds it locked and thinks, 
And then he hears Bartleby says, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> what was he doing in there? Was he getting dressed? Was he masturbating? Was he like pooping? Like, what is he doing in there? And it's in, it's in his boss's office too. In the, in the film, this is discovered when, uh, uh, the, uh, lawyer character comes, comes to the office with a, um, with a girl he's picked up at the party and he's going to have sex with her there. And Bartleby's just <laughs> standing in the corner. It kind of disturbs things. Um, what's funny is he, he called himself, uh, he, at the party, he, he, she overheard him say he was in public records and she thought that that meant like recording music. <laughs> and so he pretends he's a producer of, you know, uh, music and she's a musician, right? So she wants to seduce him so that she'll get a contract and he doesn't disabuse her of the idea. He encourages the idea. And so there's a kind of like, Oh, this is, uh, uh, an impropriety on his part, right? Taking advantage of this young woman and, and yet, I, I we don't know anything really about like, is our lawyer married? No mention of it. Right. Doesn't think of, I, I need to tell my wife I'm bringing a strange Bartleby home. Doesn't, it's such a strange story. It really is. It really is. I've, I feel like when that, um, scene happened, right, isn't it? The, the lawyer and I was just thinking back to it. Like, like when I read that, I thought that that was the first like moment of aggression, almost like it's like such a move to mm. be like, I'm so indifferent to you that now I'm going to kind of control you a little bit mm. but it's not I don't think that is actually no, what he was doing he's not like, aggressive when at you all read the whole story yeah it felt like at the moment I was like oh shit here we go like yeah <laughs> and it's a, it's a, he just doesn't care it, it, he's very ethereal it's like he's he's on another plane maybe he's playing VR or something <laughs> it's like he's not yeah. there and he has no concern for this which, which makes me think of Okay, I'm going to spoil this movie. So it's a recent movie on Amazon called Bliss with Selma Hayek and Owen Wilson. And I hated this movie with a passion. It it looks like, from all the ads, that this is a science fiction movie where this guy f- finds he's actually in a simulation and he wakes up and into a real nice world. And it turns out, no, this is a movie about drug addiction and all the science fiction stuff is just all in his head and and is not real. And it's like... So it's like you got baited and switched. I got baited and switched, and I did not like it. Sam, I am. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting because when I was reading this, I kept on seeing on Wilson as Battleby. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't works. Know why. Just like, <laughs> yeah, it just totally fit. I don't know. Um, who's the guy who played them in the 2001 movie? He's he's uh, Crispin Glover. That that guy's he's hard to understand as a film actor because he's just so strange, Crispin Glover, mm-hmm. um, which makes him perfect for Bartleby. David yeah. Tamer, this is like probably his only lead in any film, um, and he's terrific. And Glenn Headley is amazing. Uh, Maury Chaykin is very Maury Chaykin, and Joe Piscopo, <laughs> Joe Piscopo. It's actually a really good movie. It's just it, there's no audience for it at all. <laughs> Just people have I seen. I really like the sixties movie. That was that was fun. Oh, the uh, yeah, the I think that was made for schools. By the way, hmm. yeah, it's like a short film, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. It's all very like, um, I feel it's very like heavy and scary. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some menace there. It's actually mm-hmm. kind of Dickensian looking, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, 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 Dickens, I don't think Dickens is philosophical enough for this. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he he does have that sense of humor though with the characters, right? He's got yes. that the character description yeah, thing going names, on. I mean, from names to choices, descriptions. Mm-hmm. To yeah, I found I found it very uh, very much like a strange, a weird tale. Yeah, I think so. I'd put it in that box, like the kind of uncanny, almost. Yeah, definitely. Tale. It's uh, uncanny is exactly okay. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. He never uses the word weird. He uses strange over and over again. But uncanny is actually probably. Yeah, there's that other Melville story written around the same time, the Tartarus of Maids. Oh, I don't know anything Paradise about that. Paradise of Absolute Tartarus of Maids, which is like a two-part story, mm-hmm. totally unrelated things, but maybe thematically connected. The first is about, I actually forget some of the details of the first story. But it's some male professional environment, all male. But then that's the Paradise of Bachelors. Then there's the Tartarus of Male of Maids, which is the more famous story, which is about a guy who I think he's selling seeds and he needs like to buy the paper to pack the seeds in. So he goes to this paper factory and there's all these women working in this paper mill and they're all really pale. But it's it's really an odd, weird story. I mean, it does feel like a weird tale to you. Hmm. You can put together an issue of Weird Tales just out of uh, Melville stories. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Hey, guess what? Evan's what? reading the next novel. <laughs> I read it. And- yeah. It's called Mr. Adam by Pat Frank. Um, this sounds good, Marissa. You're going to like it. My first novel, the first novel I, I, I read. After a nuclear power plant in Mississippi explode, explodes, it is soon realized that the previously unknown radiation was released. The radiation caused all men on Earth to become sterile, even boys, who were still inside their mother's wombs. However, ten months after the explosion in Mississippi, a doctor delivers a perfectly healthy baby girl. It's soon discovered that the child's father, who is the surname Adam, was more than a mile under the surface of the Earth uh, inside an old silver and lead mine during the explosion. It would appear that Mr. Adam is humanity's only hope to stave off extinction. So you can see why Evan was interested in this. Yeah, he's. <laughs> you can see why I was initially interested in it, and then where they go with it, it, where he goes with it, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds fun. El- Eleanor Roosevelt wrote about it. A bit it. of a bait and switch there. What you expect? <laughs> she said, um, "Pure imagination. There is just enough possibility that it might." That's what Eleanor Roosevelt sounds like, by the way. Just enough possibility (laughs) that might come true to make one read it with interest. Part fantasy, part lampoon. Possibility. (laughs) Part lampoon. It is written with clarity, skill, and wit. It makes you chuckle, yes, but it also provides food for thought, which a lot of readers should and probably will find quite digestible. 
Um, I'm yeah. I uh, my career as a Eleanor Roosevelt impersonator was short. However, everyone agrees that it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, not necessarily. Chelsea, not necessarily. Well, All right. you know, I can live with go, my guys. delusions. See ya. Are you yeah, in for Mr. Adam right. next week, Paul? I, I. Oh yeah, you're. No, you've got a question mark. <laughs> need to confirm. I may, yeah, I may or may it depends. I mean, I'm not going. Oh, it says Paul not available. Trip. Okay. Yeah, because I thought I was going on a long driving trip. But I'm not going on a long driving trip because. I'll be here on Saturday, but Sunday I may go somewhere else, in which case I won't be able to send me the audio book. Put me as possible. I have to look for it. I, I assume that I got it from Evan a couple of times already. So, um, me. Yeah. I also have there to I go. It. I'm going to leave my the ones I'm booked on as they are for now, because my next couple of weeks are crazy. But I'll let you know if I can jump in on anything. All right. All right. Otherwise, my next one is Stephen King, by the looks. Uh, Revival? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, that's exciting. That's a ways away yet. Several weeks away. Yeah. Um, Will, you in for reading that, Mr. Adam? I, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm in for Evan. Right. There it is. I'm going to jump off. All right. Bye, have guys. a good one. Bye-bye. Later. Uh, three hearts, three lions. Do you have the text for Mr. Adam? I think I do have it here. Um... Hey, you must have had it at one point, right? I checked it out at the library. Oh, um, let me. So I seem to have the audio here. Maybe that's what you sent me. I, I have some cover art, I think. Oh, yeah, I have three good pieces of cover art, which I will share with you now. Very nice. Makes you want to read it. Look at these. <laughs> The man every woman wanted, the only virile man left in the world affected by atomic disaster. And then, the hilarious story of a shy male who suddenly found he was the only man in the world who could be a father. Would you like to be the only man in the world who could be a father? No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Yeah, once the, uh, I mean, it, it's 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 kind of like that. It's, it's it sounds appealing at first glance, but once the military gets a hold of them, it's a whole different. We need you to build up the army, son. The the, he spends most of the time in the lab, you know, getting prodded for his like. Here's the uh, e text. Not like he's being sent out to stud. Oh, poor guy. Oh, it was, uh, oh, no, no, no. I don't know if there's any movie adaptations of this. It'd be pretty easy to film, I would assume. No special effects needed. Maybe that's, maybe that's your calling, Jesse. <laughs> to make a movie of Mr. See, I believe that if I were to pick up stakes and uh, move to the places where um, shit gets done like New York or um, Los Angeles, I would do fine. Um, I didn't used to think that, but now I've seen what those places produce and I'm like, I could do better than that. <laughs> um, by the way, do you guys know why New York is the central center for... Um, uh, it's too bad Marissa isn't here to hear this. The New York is the center of um, the publishing industry. 
I'm sure it's an accident of history. No, it's an oh. accident of ge- uh, geography. It's the so, cl- I think that who wrote that stuff about global cities? Some Dutch know. scholar. Uh, she 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 made the argument that although all these cities look alike, I mean they have the same buildings, the same kind of infrastructure, the same they smell the same, they have the same stores, mm-hmm. the same Prada. Whether you're in Frankfurt or London or New York or L.A., wherever, Chicago, they all, they all kind of look the same, mm-hmm. but they're all, like, different in their functionalities. So it's really about that the, the business services that are there feeding off each other. So the, in the case of... So, yeah, so New York would have... Not just the publishers, but what the publishers rely on and the knowledge base that the publishers rely on are all there. So they can buy those services in New York. Yeah, I mean, distribution and stuff. Yeah. But um, the geography uh, is it's, it was the closest place to England in the States. Yeah. And they were doing all sorts of piracy business uh, for book oh. publishing. And that's yeah. that's that's also why the movie industry is in Los Angeles because Edison was in in New Jersey, and Edison wanted to <clears throat> control the movie industry, and the other people didn't want that. And Edison had a lock on the courts and the uh, people out out there, so he could fuck up anybody who wanted to compete yeah. with him. So all the um, movie industry said, "We got to get out of here." <laughs> so they all picked up stakes and went to the opposite end of the country. And that's why Hollywood is where. Yeah, I know that's what Hollywood is. The, the rise of Hollywood, because early days of film, there were like all kinds of films being made all over the place. And it, it, isn't it interesting that that it, it almost all industries they start off as like uh, pirates, and then they settle in and say, you know what, we got to get rid of pirates. <laughs> now that we're rolling, raking yeah. in the big bucks, we got to put the fences up, say so nobody else can compete with us. So we can sit on our our properties and just extract rent, which is where we are now. I guess this is public domain in Canada. Yeah, so yeah, that's what I just sent you. Oh, you just you sent me the same one. Yeah. Uh, oh no, you got Gutenberg. I sent you faded page, which is has more versions. It's yeah, PDF the Gutenberg. And, maybe this is nicer. I don't know. Um, I haven't looked at this, but they have a PDF version as well. Faded page is pretty. Almost the PDFs. The Gutenberg version was just. Yeah, this looks like a uh, scan. Oh, maybe not. Oh, it's pretty good looking. It's uh, corrected in some places. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm this gonna... is the ver. I think this is. I don't I'm gonna hop, gentlemen. Take care. Have a nice hop. Talk to you next time. Sounds good. Look forward to it. All right. I'll see you next week. Uh, what else do they have on here that you could narrate? Wow. Well, I, I, I still have Prince Alberic and the Snake Lady. Yeah, well, you can book that. If you ever want to do that one. Yep. Oh, oh, wow. They got a lot of stuff here. Yeah, I do. Let's see if anyone listened to it yet. I, I'm interested in everything. Especially if it's uh, got an audio book. Alberic and the Snake Lady is wild. I like Snake Ladies. Yeah, hell fruit. 146 views. One one hour and 34 minutes. Oh, uh, that's the YouTube? 
It's Vernon Lee. Yeah, dude, you're picking the wrong titles if you want to have, or wrong authors if you want to have downloads. If you want to have downloads, you have to yeah, I, pick Stephen King. I, I, I thought the story was wild, and there wasn't any recordings. So, yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm uh, luckily I'm not driven by ratings. So, mm-hmm. but uh, this this I I don't go to this site much. I just use it for, but um. It's because I'm scanning my own shit, but they they have a very simple layout, very old fashioned. Latest editions. How do you how do you search? Oh, I see. Uh, science fiction, three hundred sixty three. Wow, I've never heard of some of these things. The Torch, post apocalyptic no- novel. It has the um, uh, Statue of Liberty on the cover. Post-apocalyptic novel, not so very different in tone from any number of recent movies in spite of it being first published a century ago. The torch in the question is that held by the Statue of Liberty. No, I don't know. I mean, if, if you believe I, that, I that's ridiculous. Law, Come on. Law is a thing, but I don't know what that guy when is. Girls are girls with, can't last ten minutes without it. When girls are with me, the price they must pay for the privilege of my company is that... I mean, that's ridiculous already. <laughs> then they cannot listen to music. And what happens? They go insane. Most girls can't last 10 minutes without it. Why? Too used to constant stimulus that drowns out the often painful inner dialogue. So that, I guess it's hard to redact that, but I think that that's correct. That, that, but it's not just applied to women, right? Or girls. And then above, the below is not a joke. I don't know who either of these people are. Hello. Um, oh, good morning. Most people Sorry have addictions to music and addictions to drowning out their thoughts. I don't know about the most, but that's certainly fairly common. Want to see the extent to which you do this? Go for a music fast. Seven days and don't listen to a single song. You'll realize, I was fucking addicted. <laughs> um, but, like, obviously, this I is something I'm... It's like good to focus on your thoughts all the time. Oh, uh, but see, I think that's my point, is that it, it, I, I, I'm not immune to music, and that's... It's a way of... I mean, think of teenagers, right? It's what they do when mom's mad at the, they're mad at their mom or they're mad at school. What do they do? They go up to their room, turn on the music really loud, put on their headphones really loud, and drown out the pain because they they don't have marijuana or they don't have alcohol. I think it's wrong here. Yeah, you can go the other way though. You can use it to focus the pain and focus your thoughts. Absolutely, but then there's the other thing, which is the earworm aspect of music and obviously you know like that that was the crazy part in the dog piling i guess marissa didn't see this yet but if you look at the chat the yeah do- i saw it okay oh, well i saw it yesterday i don't know if it's grown okay. <laughs> it's no I, it, it hasn't grown it stopped, thankfully. Uh, it all yeah. seemed like it, it all seemed based on wrong premises to me yes. so I was like, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but it is related to the podcast because um when I, I've been working a lot lately, but not at my normal job, you know, as tutor, I've been doing a lot of like yard work and I don't know, chopping vegetables, obviously, uh, based on my dream. Um, <laughs> instead of um, normal stuff, I'm doing like more like work I don't enjoy, uh, non-intellectual work. And um and I can see the temptations, and I've had them in the past when I've had, you know, shitty jobs, of just trying to power through it, just trying to make make it so that it's tolerable. And uh, so people, like, 
listen to music at work and they drink at work and they but do those all those are equivalent activities uh they they're related because they're both about da- not damaging but changing your brain right so yeah but i think if well that's a thing are we changing that's why brain? i want to get back to this addiction thing is this even addiction can you no. use this term addiction? No, I don't it think so. It seems to me addiction is when your body is dependent on some external Yeah, chemical addiction, substance. right? Yeah, so we use this term addiction for workout, work, sex, yeah. and now music. But those things all stimulate naturally occurring chemicals in the brain. Yeah. Somehow. I'm not a, I'm not a biologist, but that I know enough to know that, like... Sex releases certain chemicals endorphins in your brain and, and they feel all good. Sorts of stuff, yeah. W- working out does the same thing. Music yeah, might what, do that. Eating, what whatever, but your brain. you can't get addicted <laughs> to that. That's what your body creates. It's not an external thing that your body becomes dependent on. No, but it, it, it could be a compulsion, perhaps a psychological compulsion at best. But often, what we're trying to do with drugs or any particular activity is to try to modify our experience of reality, right? To uh, block pain, to block thoughts, to change our brain in some so. way. I, I think that's wrong, I just don't think right? we should use the word addiction for anything that it's it's a, a dangerous word. physical function. Go go for it. And, and, and also like the blanket statement of like drugs and music is all for blocking pain and stuff. Like that's not true. It, no. it can be all kinds of things. Yeah, you can yeah, use it no. To focus. No, but there are many reasons why you can use music to focus, you can use drugs to focus. Yeah, of course and but all sorts of different drugs do different like so i'm a big fan and different of music does different coffee well. because it oh, causes like, I, focus right and you know yeah, it hypes I'm you the up same as you i find pop music so distracting and i can't it, it pulls me out of my thoughts but i do use other types of music to actually help me focus on my thoughts and have, like especially when i'm working and i need like hyper focus i'm mm. using music to cover like external, i get it other external stimuli that would be pulling me out of but my are thoughts. you are you music listening to lyric focus. music <laughs> no, not lyrics. Because yeah. I'm, I'm writing, so I can't. Indeed, I can't be, I'm using language, so I, I yeah. So I want to I want to point out like that it's particularly earworms that they. I had this whole conversation with this person Moira, um, and she was saying that this happens to her. You know, the effect of um, what I said there is music can hijack brains. Lyrics embed themselves and swirl around. Many people do this. They do it on purpose. And then I, when, when I get an earworm in my head, yeah. like, for example, I've been started watching Enterprise. That's the first Star Trek series with the lyrics in the, in the opening music. And mm-hmm. it's fucking persistent. And I don't want to have it in my head. But I think you have to say, I think you can say that, but you have to say that you're specifically talking about earworms and earworms for you because not everyone's earworms are the same. But of like, course. I have of friends course. who listen to like lyric music while they're writing and like, I don't know how they do it. But <laughs> it, it, it just, it, it, I mean, you, you, you getting in the zone that like, I hate music, but it's like, like for example, does music without lyrics, like say anything from John Cage to back to say Bach, does that, do you hate that song of music? Well, well? I, I have written an essay about it a long time ago. And if you read, if people don't tend to like one of the, people in the thing didn't obviously read past the first paragraph or whatever it's not even that long it's just that <laughs> i use the word hate to under to present the idea that this is something that nobody seems to care about like for example uh smoking everybody an- around us knows that you can't smoke indoors now unless it's in your own home 
But uh, it used to be the case that people smoked everywhere, on the bus, on the plane, in the classroom, right? Yeah. It, it was everywhere, and it was persistent. How, what changed? Well, uh, society changed. We sort of said, uh, you know, let's not do this in some way, right? <laughs> and the thing is, is like smoke, music goes everywhere. If you're walking down the street and somebody's got their uh, boombox on their shoulder, you have to have this <laughs> Does shit. this happen to you a lot, Jesse? Uh, well, for example, I went to the dentist's office to get my teeth uh, cleaned, right? I guess, so you mean like ambient music in general? Yeah. 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 And I... it, so the, the, the workers there have this piped in 24-7, right? It's whenever they're there, the music is playing. And it's not like yeah. it's it, it has lyrics. It's turned down very low. Uh, ambient music is everywhere. It's in the mall. It's in the elevator. It's in every office you go into. And it's it does many things. One of them is calm the workers, make them more productive. Um, another thing it does is calm the uh, shoppers, make them more shoppy. Right. As someone who worked in retail, I can tell you it does not calm the workers or make us more. Pre- no, no, it's, it, it, but it's absolutely. Hell. <laughs> but that's the that's the claim, right? So yeah. some workers it drives insane, and I've had that experience, right? Like I, I, I do not want you forcing this shit in my ears, and it's not like I can walk around wearing <laughs> ear blocking devices yeah, because it's not allowed. Like shoppers. Like well, you, you could theoretically wear like, you could wear theoretically wear noise canceling earphones. <laughs> if I'm a Best Buy employee, I don't think I can. No, no. But what I'm saying is you at you as shopper going into Best Buy could theoretically wear. <laughs> if, if 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 the I do if the ambient mute if the ambient I do, Paul. Sound okay. Yeah, so, me too. And it's not because I hate music; it's because I hate the type of music that they play in those indeed. places. Indeed. Like, and so it's not. Uh, if you read, if anybody reads past the first couple of paragraphs of that thing, it's very clear that I'm not against music per se. I'm against inappropriate mu- music, which is uh, like uh, I've been documenting TV shows that have. Musical dial, musical lyrics over dialogue persistently. Like they just have conversations and then characters are having conversations and then they're playing like pop music over it. Yeah. Loud with lyrics that are supposed to tell me how to feel. That's the point of music, right? Is yeah, that's intrusive. If you watch a movie, Especially it if has you're a sensitive to it. Yeah. You watch a movie, it has a great soundtrack. Um, what makes it great is it does what the artist intended effectively, but if you do it wrong, it's, it's ruinous, right? Super ruinous. I agree. Like I find music manipulative, um, but at least you're controlling it. So like, if you know what music you like and you want a specific effect, then I think it's like, it's great. (laughs) Yeah. Oh no. It's, it's, it's like powerful magic, right? It, It, you have to know, I mean, obviously, <laughs> we don't have magic in the real world, but it's as close to magic as we yeah. can get. Because so it, you're like walking around in the world and everyone's just like firing off spells in all kinds of directions. Indeed. And hit with them. And there, uh, um, this is, I, I think in one of the DMs or comments, I mentioned Paul, you know, Alfred Bester, what what did he do for a living? Well, 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 Advertising, yeah, I mean, right? I, I mean, yeah. 
he he does pop that earworm in his brain so that he can't be right. And not just in one story. It's in not just the demolished man. It's also in Fahrenheit uh, or fondly Fahrenheit. Right. It's it's he knows the effect. It's cultivated. This is why they pay big money to license songs for ads. Right. Is because they're particularly licensing a spell that is designed to do a certain thing. And mm-hmm. it's it's super powerful. And and the thing is, is if we don't recognize, um, go, go for it. Everything that we do is designed to have certain effects on our brain. Though. Yeah, but this is this is the modern thing, right? Is that you know past uh, eighteen uh, nineteen nineteen oh five? It's almost impossible to five find previous to that continuous music at on demand at any point, right? Unless you're yeah. the king and you can have a serenade in your bedroom it's just impossible now we can feed our oh sorry about that car sounded like a motorcycle um it could have been a car um in any case we can feed our interest in music as as much as we want many employers i'm sure paul in your office even people can listen to whatever they want while at their desk right well, yeah, but but it's not like they have a radio sitting there that people no no that but gets personally out. personally right, pers- you could listen to uh, music or something if you're wearing an earbud or something right no, 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 well yes and I do I mean I listen to podcasts and I listen to well audiobooks like say I, I see it show. I see it all the time people you know, commenting saying things like you get me through right <laughs> podcasts at work right you get me through. My German fan Mirko um, talked to talked to you know told me how much he appreciated having the podcast when he's on his commute to the work that he hates. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the thing is, we do this, right? We do this, and we don't recognize it. We don't say, "Hey, this is a coping mechanism." And I don't want to say too much more, but of course, Will, going back to your first question, everything feeds into the podcast, and it's podcast related. But here, here's another reason why ambient music gets played in a lot of in a lot of settings. It's not it's not to call them the workers, but but it's it's the same reason why a white noise generator is used at our work. It's yeah. to dampen com- it's dampen echoes and conversations so that so that the 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 ambient sound of people talking isn't carry across the entire building because i've noticed especially when during the pandemic when we had the ambient music when we had the ambient sound off i could hear people halfway across the building even though there were only 10 of us talking because there was nothing to dampen it down so that so the music that you hate has has a auditory effect of being able to give people a little more privacy that way. I agree with you, Paul. It's 100% about blocking external stimuli, not <laughs> yep. your inner thoughts. No, no, it, it depends. It all depends, right? So uh, I know it can. I know earworms can affect your inner thoughts, but I'm just saying like the background music is designed to like give you a little space to be able to think and actually focus. Not We're talking about so many, focus. so many things is a part, part of the issue, right? So um, I only, I only sent Paul the, part that was in the top like I, I i mean it was part of the quote tweet right so i i didn't separate it out but i was only thinking about like um um most people have addictions to music and addictions to drowning out their thoughts um i think that that's true um uh, except for the addictions part 
but dr- drowning out negative thoughts is something I need to do sometimes, but only I've noticed doing it lately, like with my work, <laughs> working, like digging. I'm doing a lot of digging. And like, I'm like, why am I doing this stupid digging? <laughs> throwing, throwing bucket full of dirt. I'm like, I need a distraction from this. I hate the work. So I'm do, I do a distraction from it. Right. And that's a negative thought that I'm trying to distract. So there, there, and then there's the earworm thing, right? There's a whole bunch of, uh, different aspects to it. But my, my point for the podcast was, and why it came up in my thoughts, um, this week was because, um, the story is about work. And I guess we're going to get started on it pretty soon. We probably yeah, should because I do I have a think, game today. Yeah, I just think it's wrong. Like, that's how you're using it in this specific circumstance. I just think it's wrong to think that everyone's doing the same thing. Like, I need to do the exact opposite in my work. I need to, like... I'm trying to get into like a flow state and focus on my work and focus Absolutely. on every single sentence in my thoughts. And sometimes having background music is the only thing that lets me do that. Like it's like the opposite for me. Mm. Um, it's not about getting away from the work. It's like, I need to be hyper focused. Yeah. So, I mean, we could probably make a distinction between lyrics, <laughs> lyric music and not right. Yeah. It's, getting it's, into it the zone like with mu- music, like pop music is what you, you, what you really, not necessarily because I, I, I could be upset by um, music inappropriate in a film as well, w- without dialogue. It's just very powerful, and I object to it being used willy-nilly. It is powerful. I would agree with that. And, and I because just think it's used in so many different ways that it's hard to make any kind of like blanket statements about it. Absol- absolutely. It wasn't, it, uh, I wasn't even making a statement. I was just sending a DM. <laughs> like, hey, this is interesting. I think Paul <laughs> find this interesting, and like Paul's like, I don't get it. <laughs> and then everybody says, racist, no, sexist, or misogynist. Or something. Like, well, now we're focusing on the other parts of that tweet. <laughs> they yeah. were definitely shit talking about women in that tweet, but yeah, well, I know that was it was somebody some you were talking about. That was all. Yeah, that, that, those are jokes. Those are, I mean. Uh, no, there, there, there are people who are that screwed up that they actually believe. Yeah, those I, those I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm it, sure. It can, it can also be a joke and sexist. At yeah, the same time. yeah, and yeah. more importantly, <laughs> more importantly, the fir- the the guy who's quote tweeting says the below joke, right? He's saying it's a joke. <laughs> right? um, so whoever, yeah, but like I said, Jesse, it can be a joke and sexist yeah. at the same time. Absolutely, right? absolutely. It doesn't say, "Oh, it's a joke." Does not absolve him of being sexist. I don't even know the relationship between these two things, but I, I noticed they both have like the Terminator face as their icon, although different angles or whatever. So it could be the same account, <laughs> just like or same guy um, <laughs> doing the thing. Um, but uh, the. the uh, the reason I know that it affects people is because I'm a person. I'm, j- I'm different from everybody else, but I'm also the same. Um, let's uh, let's talk about this and uh, see see where it goes. Um, did everybody uh, get a copy of the e-text or the PDF? I should say. Will, did you find that? Uh, I I just done um, it. Okay. I, I don't have an e-text version like um, it's searchable, but I do have. I found the original 
publication that's anonymous. Um, it's not major that we have that, but I want to um, just be on the same page as it were because I'll send the link there because um, uh, I was reading on the Wikipedia entry that it had um, had some minor revisions when it was oh, later really? collected. Um, but whatever those revisions are, are not uh, likely to um, be in the audiobook version. I can't say for sure, but... I noticed some changes. Oh, okay, good. All right. Um, shall we begin? Your recorder started. Uh, I got I got one. Well, you know you like your backup. I do, it's, yes. It saved us more than once. Oh, so. yes. No, I, I sent a file to Scott the, this morning that was uh, saved by Eric's backup recording. How you been doing? Well, I haven't seen you online. I've been really sleepy. Um, the drugs they have me on are making me sleep a lot. Okay. I'll allow it. Do they la- allow you to dream? Yeah. It's like I've been having a lot of like kind of like it's like they're not nightmares, but they're not good dreams either. Yeah. Um, just sort of like uh, I have a lot of dreams that are about like stuff I'm like like ambient stress. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, uh, like I had this dream last night where my parents took me to their like weird wine club or something. <laughs> and, like, I don't drink Nightmare. Guys. Um, this doesn't do anything for me. Um, and then like, turn on like, some music, man. <laughs> yeah, I get, or like, I'll get lost in dreams a lot. Like, I mean, like the, the narrative of the dream will be like, oh no, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah yeah so like just like or um i'm moving in a month so i have like a lot of dreams about like there being too much stuff mm-hmm. i heard a cool thing about dreams that i want to uh, see if you guys have ever thought about or whatever but apparently um lights don't turn on instantly in dreams they're all on dimmer switches because yeah. our brain well, yeah. you, you can't play with light levels in a dream you, you play you you've ever tried to use a light switch in a lucid dream, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. That's so oh, crazy. It is very creepy. Uh, oh, here's how I've been able to know I'm dreaming lately is, um, um, I'll like be trying to look up something on my cell phone or mm-hmm. ask someone for a piece of information that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And they will not be able to give it to me. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it'll usually be about like mythology or something. Like I'll be trying to have a conversation with someone. I'll be like, "Tell me something about this myth," and then they like will not be able to, and mm. I'll like be like, "Oh yeah, that, of course." And it's not like <laughs> like I kind of already know I'm dreaming at that point. Mm. And I'm just like, "Oh, of course, this person can't like tell me anything that I don't know." Yeah, the Wi-Fi sucks allowed. when you try and look things up on in dreams. You can barely the Wi-Fi is terrible. Wi-Fi, no electric light. Yeah. Oh no, I don't have enough bars. No, the easiest way to tell is literally pick up a book and try and try and read it. You can usually read the like the title and like yeah, maybe the first sentence. Very yeah, I, I, it, or the text becomes small or it becomes illegible or it's too faded or. Um, yeah, that's what I heard the same thing. And, yeah. and where I learned about that light switch thing, it was like, yeah, text is like it just moves around and reform, reforms itself. And yep, it is very creepy. 
I'm getting like so three crazy. or four I dreams mean, a night I've now. I've like had that where I didn't know if I was dreaming. Like I always feel like I know that I'm dreaming and I'm almost like controlling it. So I've never had to like inspect. Wow, you're a realistic dream. I'm envious though. I very rarely hit that say like, okay, I know I'm in a dream. I can deal with this. It's almost like in retrospect, oh, that was a dream. It's like uh, in the moment, it's rare. I have to do something that like makes me realize I'm dreaming. I'm like editing my dreams and I'm dreaming. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm I'm like circling back and like the the like the dream will kind of like play over sometimes. Right. I'm like, no, I don't want that to happen. I think I'm gonna like retract that. <laughs> All right. Uh Evan Evan is of course dreamless. Dreamless Evan. No, I dream all the time. Do you? What do your dreams consist of? You don't, don't really. Don't. I don't write them down. Yeah, if you don't write them down, you lose them. That's true. absolutely yeah, true. This is why I, I, I don't, I, I don't mean, do it every time. I feel bad when I don't because I'm like, I, I want to read those later. I get it. Coffee. It's it's a <laughs> yeah, major priority. All right, um, I think we're ready. If you did these in the morning, if you did these in the morning, my time, I might have clear memory of them. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you need to write them I down if you want. Pretty to. good. I, I I tend to be happy with my dreams. Me too. Very pleased reading them over. Like, oh yeah, that that's definitely my dream. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I've I've been dreaming too lately of my dead parents being alive, Aww. and that's not fun. That's awful. I mean, for the longest time, I wasn't dreaming of my father. I mean, he passed more than 10 years ago. But ever since my mother's passed away, I dream of both of them being alive. And that's not fun at all. Uh, you know, sometimes I'm not in my dreams. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just experiencing something and like, there's no Jesse there at all. I think I've had that too. Yeah. Pretty interesting. I usually think of it like... I. There's a play or a, or a film or something. Exactly. Or, That's what I mean when I edit my dreams. Like I feel like sometimes I'm like it's because I do this all day, like working mm. with people's stories. I'm just like seeing it as a story. And, kind and of they like, are dreams, essentially written down yeah. awake dreams. Yeah. All right, we should start. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, let's see. We got a bunch of people. I think Will is last. I think Evan is second to last. Uh, Marissa's third to last. Paul is second to last. And Jesse's first. Jesse's fifth to last. <laughs> yeah, fifth to last. Fifth That's to last. right. I, I can't count past the four, I think, or whatever. <laughs>